And I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein myself and Kyle take turns introducing each other to films, and in this way, we catch up on our cinema. Uh, So it is the month of September, which means it is Masterclass Month. And essentially what that means is uh, September happens to be the month in which we started the show, uh, two long years ago as far as I recall, and uh, the very first thing we ever recorded before we even started doing numbered episodes here um, was something we called a masterclass. And essentially what that is is where we take a look at an entire franchise, like an entire film franchise, uh, and just dedicate like an entire month to just talking about that. Uh, so this has been a long time coming, something that we've been bouncing around, about both Kyle and I, uh, essentially since the first time we sat down to record anything. Uh, And that is the uh, Batman's (laughs) Masterclass. Um, So this whole month of September is Batman month. We're going to be talking about um, not the entirety of the Batman live-action film franchise. Uh, We are omitting the Adam West 1966 Batman film, um, as that is an adaptation of the television show, which unfortunately Kyle and I don't have the most extensive background with. And also it's like, it's often omitted when you're talking about the film history of the character. It is. Um, so apologies to anyone out there who feels that like it's it's sorely missed or something. But we're going to be going from uh, the Tim Burton era beginning in 1989 into the Joel Schumacher era, into the Christopher Nolan era, and into the Zack Snyder era. And along the way, we're probably going to be taking a look at uh, The Batman, uh, the new Robert Pattinson headlined film that's coming out in 2021. But... Uh, essentially, we're going to be breaking things down by director from from week to week this month. Um, so, how you feeling about this, Kyle? You're pretty hyped. Yeah, uh, I was I was going to touch on uh, Adam West. Was uh, the the main thing is is with my Batman. Um, my Batman at any point in any Batman character we've had post Adam West listens to the Cure yep. and <laughs> or the Smiths. <laughs> Adam West. Adam West Batman is more like a mamas and the papas and the carpenters. He's he's a little more chill. I'm like, my Batman wouldn't be listening to them. So that's kind of why I have to omit him because we didn't grow up with him. And it's just not what you think of when you think of Batman. But yes, I'm very excited to talk about Batman. Um, for me, I don't really... I'm not into the uh, Marvel comics. Like com- Marvel comic characters were never cool to me. My brother's a huge Spider-Man fan. And... Uh, I grew up, we both grew up Batman fans, and that was the one I just always liked, and I don't know why. I I don't know, like, I, he's, I don't really connect with him. My my parents aren't dead. I'm not a billionaire. Um, I really don't want to take just, justice into my own hands, uh, but I don't know why. He, he's, the, he's the character that I latched on to. Well, I mean, we're bouncing around ideas how to structure this this first Masterclass episode um, before we started recording, and one thing that we both kind of settled on is something that seems important is to talk about like our personal history with the characters and with the franchise and i think that's a great point to start with kyle is we should explore that (laughs) well i do want to mention that the the new bat the batman trailer came out and we have actually had this plan before we even knew that trailer was going to drop so it just so happens that it came at the perfect time (laughs) like it's on everybody's minds and that's exactly what we were going to talk about this month yeah, no, the Warner Brothers kind of made our decision for us, mm-hmm. um, because like I said, this was something we'd been planning since essentially we started doing this Catching Up on Cinema podcast, and yeah. it's like, I think you texted me like the day it came out, you're like, well, I guess we're doing Batman. We're doing Batman. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't have a problem to. with that. 
Yeah, no, the the Matt Reeves the Batman movie, which we both watched, rewatched the trailer mm-hmm. for uh, just before recording. Um, it looks excellent. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, everything you said about what you look for in your Batman, the the curism. Is this a Nirvana song they played over the uh, the trailer? Oh, I didn't catch it. Um, I'll have to I'll have to watch it again and see what yeah. I, see what the song is. <laughs> no, it it's a thing in a modern or, or contemporary uh, film marketing these days. I don't know who decided that we needed to have um, chilling renditions of pop songs mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, I want to say, uh, Creep. Was one that I've I've definitely heard over a trailer. Um, I think Fight Club maybe. Uh... Mm, no, this is a much more recent phenomenon. Like the most embarrassing version that comes to mind is Avengers: Age of Ultron, where they they did a, a creepy, melancholy rendition of uh, "I've Got No Strings to Hold Me Down." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the Pinocchio song. Yeah, that's I was cool. like, well, I mean, you're you are Disney. You can you don't have to pay any rights to use that. So yeah. sure. <laughs> Thanks for making something else about that movie creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, we're both looking forward to the Matt Reeves, the Batman, and like I said, we're probably going to bring it up quite a bit this month. But um, maybe even dedicate like a mini episode to it or something. But mm-hmm. uh, in terms of personal history, though, Kyle, like, I have you have you been exposed to the batman your your whole life or f- do you remember when the first time you came across the batman may have been batman like batman's kind of like star wars and jurassic park where as far back as i can remember it's been a part of my life jim carrey just in general also <laughs> so just always been a part of my life um so yeah so i actually believe that the schumacher batman uh were the i actually saw those before i at least saw batman forever before I saw this one, because um, I didn't even know that there were more Batman before that, and I found like, oh, what's Batman '89? And I watched, we watched the hell out of that. It was recorded off of TV, um, like on HBO. So I actually went back and watched those uh, after watching the Schumacher Batman. And the not to not to get into the Schumacher Batman, but it's a completely different kind of film. It's in the color. Like I think the the main thing is is the color. And even as a kid, I loved those Schumacher ones because they're so much fun and they're so much fun to look at. Um, and then even as a kid, I liked the, the the Burton ones as well. They're completely different, but there's still something as a kid that I, I was just drawn to it. Yeah, no, I think Batman and Spider-Man kind of have that appeal where it's like there's some sort of universality to it. Because like, it's like law. Children love Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Like If you expose a child to Spider-Man... I don't care what their background is. They're going to find something to like about Spider-Man. Batman, um, maybe a little bit more specialized, but yeah, he just kind of has that something about him that um, people just gravitate towards. And uh, for me, yeah, uh, Batman was kind of just a thing that was around. I mean, for God's sake, the character's been around since the 1930s, so Mm -hmm. obviously he's just been in the air. uh, You absorb it through osmosis, even if you don't seek it out or discover it. But... um, I think the first time I ever encountered anything Batman related was like a kid that I had like a play date with. Like, I think I only went to his house like exactly one time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one of those kids. I think he had like a bomber jacket or something when he was like five or three years old. Um, this was a long time ago. I was a very small child, so I don't even know how I remember this. But um, he was the only person at that point in my life who was a fan of both Indiana Jones and Batman. Like I said, I was probably like three years old. This was probably like 1989 or 1990. Mm. Um, somehow I remember this shit. But he had uh, the Batcave playset from the original 1989 toys. 
um yeah he may have been like a, a year older than me or something but gotcha. i thought that was fucking bitching <laughs> um but i think that was the first time i ever e- experienced anything batman related but um the first thing that really got me into batman um was kind of similar to the death of superman uh, it was the nightfall story arc in the comic books and i remember my brother had a certain level of hype for this and my brother's not a huge comic book fan um i probably am more so than he is but in 1993 that was the debut of bane and that was the story arc wherein bane breaks the bat he, he bends batman over his knee and uh snaps his spine in half and then batman's replaced by like they call him Azrael bat he's like batman with power armor <laughs> um, and the design uh the issue in which that design debuted was batman 500 so all the kids at the playground just called the character batman 500 mm. um it's funny too because all the kids like back then we all thought that that was like the superior batman like it's like oh it's batman 500 he's so much better than the original batman but in actuality if you read that story arc of the comics the entire reason it exists is to point to the fact that it's like no original flavors best <laughs> like <laughs> like no all the all the blades and like m- spiked gauntlets and stuff are actually a bad thing for batman to have now at the time I mean, Spider-Man, we, we'd already had um, one, two, three, four Batman movies before we even had a Spider-Man movie. Um, we had Superman movies, but I, you've seen those. Those were before my time. So as kids, this was like the real only superhero movie that we had was uh, the Batman movies. In terms of movies, yeah. I mean, there were some like hit and miss Batman wannabe movies that came out like barbed wire wasn't exactly the giant hit that maybe somebody thought it would be steel (laughs) steel yeah Uh, yeah um so yeah batman was kind of like he was the premier superhero in this era because superman was primarily the late 70s early 80s and then uh, it did not end well so they put that franchise to bed until the 2000s um and then like you said x-men and spider-man wouldn't come about until blade you know kind of revitalize the superhero genre in the wake of Batman and Robin. The um, o- see the only other Marvel um uh, group that I like is the X-Men. Uh, my brother and I we watched the cartoon we I watched the cartoon when I was a kid. I definitely had Wolverine action figures for sure. Um and then when those movies came out, I actually really liked the the X-Men movies. I even liked the third one. Controversial opinion. I like all three of those movies. I uh, I mean the third one's not awful. I, I will defend it to some extent. It's a it's a little hollow in comparison to the first two. Like mm-hmm. it, it lacks heart and it's a little cheesier, I guess. Um, and even like some of the action choreography and stuff, it feels just like not as well considered as mm-hmm. the other two. Um, and you can tell it's a different director who doesn't have as much of a vision. Rat Ratner. <laughs> but um, hey, Kelsey Grammer on wires, man. That's all I need to make me happy. Kelsey Grammer on fucking wires in a blue ape suit. Yes. Um, oh, and, but yeah, and, I'm glad you brought up the cartoon though, because like I want to say that. Oh yes. Superheroes in the '90s, in particular, that's where they existed. Was comic? The comics were actually kind of floundering around the lake like the mid through the late 90s for sure they were dying um mm. but cartoons like saturday morning cartoons that's where superheroes lived the Bat- batman the animated series i definitely watched the hell out of and i remember i've got it queued on prime i want to rewatch that mask of the phantasm yeah um actually a lot of people point to that as being the best batman movie um, and a lot of people also point to the cartoon, uh, the Paul Dini and Bruce Timm, 
animated series uh, that came out in the wake of Batman Returns uh, as being the best interpretation of the character. And in some ways, I can't really disagree. It's like Kevin uh, Kevin Conroy, I believe, does the voice of Batman, and of course Mark Hamill, the voice of the Joker, and the two of them. It's like there's a reason they're both in all of those Arkham games. Uh, mm. Because yeah, it's hard. It's hard to picture those characters outside of live action as being represented by anyone else. Come now, Boopsie. <laughs> you killed Captain Clown. <laughs> That's one of my favorite episodes of that series. Is the the stinky barge with Captain Clown. It was on Prime for a minute, and I didn't get to watch it all before it left. But like the second episode, uh, there's this song. I, uh, jingle bells, Batman smells, Robin laid an egg, and I've been saying that for years, and since like the first grade probably, and I never knew where it came from, and then I was watching that, I'm like, oh my god, it's from this. I think it predates the cartoon though. Does it? Okay. I, I, I've known about that in my entire life, and I love that that sequence ends with him inexplicably riding a Christmas tree rocket out of mm. prison. <laughs> How? <laughs> Don't ask. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Just let it be. It. It's amazing. <laughs> um, but yeah, the I guess the thing that we're trying to get a- across here is that both of us have an extensive history with the character dating back as long as we can remember. Um, but I am curious, like, like what it is about the Batman. Maybe we'll figure it out as we go, like, what it is about Batman that is so so attractive to, to us. Yeah. But, um, for me, it was definitely Batman Returns. Like, maybe we should just lay that out right now. Like, what, what is our favorite uh, Batman movie? You know, I, I think I have to say Batman Returns, just from the production standpoint and uh, the story... But if I was being completely honest with myself, I'd probably yeah. have to say uh, Batman Forever. <laughs> that's that's fair. I mean, you you talked it up pretty strongly only a minute ago, and I think that's I think that's important. And also, it speaks to your age too. Yeah. It's like that that was the one that meant the most to you when it came out. And um, for me, it's Batman Returns. And again, that points to my age because I remember the marketing hype train behind it. Uh, I only got to see it for the first time on a bootleg VHS that my parents uh, recorded the film off of the TV. So it has some great 90s commercials mm-hmm. in, interspersed in it. And it's also edited for TV. So there's a couple of key moments of violence that were omitted uh, that I did not get to experience until much later in life. How many Little Caesars commercials were on that on that tape? <laughs> <laughs> Probably many. Uh, pizza Pizza was a fucking thing, man. That, the Bigfoot, the Bigfoot. I remember when that came out. That was the only reason anyone started going to Little Caesars over the other places. Oh my God, the Bigfoot pizza! You got to be kidding me! It was like the Bigfoot and yeah. the the double the uh, the stuffed crust Pizza Hut pizza. That yep. was like the game changer. I forgot about the big. <laughs> I, if you had never said that, I if I never would have remembered the Bigfoot pizza pizza. I completely <laughs> forgot about that. That is insane. No, that was literally the only reason anyone converted to Little Caesars for like five minutes. Um, but we should probably get to the Batmans. So like I said, um, the way we're going to be going about doing this, I don't know how structured these conversations are going to be. Probably not very. But um, each episode, we're going to be tackling um, the Batman films covered by an individual director. Yes. That's um, the so easiest way case, to go. It's the easiest way to go. Uh, so the first one uh, is, of course, Tim Burton. Um, Mr. Tim. Yeah. Uh, he's He's been... 
talked about on our show quite a bit, but I don't know that we've actually covered one of his films before. No, it's it's hard to cover a Tim Burton film because he's lit, it's literally like I either really like the film or I can't even I can barely get through the film. Like I can't watch it. Like <laughs> like Big Fish, uh, I really like Sweeney Todd is good. I think he did Sweeney Todd. The, yes, he did. Yeah, he did Sweeney Todd. Um, those are those are good, and they're kind of like outliers in his filmography. They're like, oh, he did those, interesting. But there's like Planet of the Apes, and then uh, what is that? Uh, oh, I forgot it now. The Willy Wonka, the Char- Charlie and Charlie the Chocolate, Chocolate Factory. Factory, unwatchable. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't even try to sit through those. I, I watched them each one time, and I'm like, I never went back again. Yeah, if you ask me, he basically didn't have a miss until the year 2000, basically. I was going to say, um, Sleepy Hollow was like... That was the turning point. Right after that was when he kind of went... Although a lot of people, and I unfortunately haven't seen this. My brother actually kind of told me, you need to see this. Um, a Big Fish, I've heard, is very, very good. It's and, it's my... it's my uh, Steph's favorite movie is Big Fish. Yeah, no, my brother told me like a long time ago, like, bro, you, you really ought to watch Big Fish. It, it is excellent. Like, I, I know, I know. I, I really do need to get to it, and I think it's on Amazon Prime, so I don't have many excuses right now, but um, yeah, up until like 1999, he, he could not miss. It was just like, can't fucking miss. Sleepy <laughs> Hollow is probably one of my most favorite, like top five favorite films for set design. It is, it's gorgeous. It's yeah. one of the, it's, I, just, I just love looking at it. Uh, the, the movie's fine and Johnny Depp is fun but uh, yeah it, it's I might actually rewatch it it's the, almost the perfect time we just we're about to jump into September it's about time to start watching some Halloween movies yeah no I mean they even found a good use for Casper Van Dien and that's pretty fucking hard man <laughs> um, uh, yes lopping off Casper Van Dien's head is a good thing to do in your movie <laughs> pro tip to any casting directors out there <laughs> But oh, yeah, uh, for getting Beetlejuice as well. I'm sorry, just mentioning one of my favorites. Like Beetlejuice is up there too. Well, I mean, speaking of Beetlejuice, that's that's something mm, that's worth yeah. pointing out is that Beetlejuice was what got Tim Burton the gig essentially. So Pee Wee's Big Adventure was his first feature. Mm. Um, up until then, I believe he was a animator primarily. He did a lot of stop motion work, and I think he was straight out of film school and stuff. He was, you know, kind of like an auteur artist of of sorts. And then Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which I believe he may have had a hand in uh, directing the title sequence of the television show. Hmm. I could be totally wrong, or he may have just been associated with people who he continued to work with over the years. But um, he did that movie, and then Beetlejuice. And Beetlejuice, which of course featured Michael Keaton, Mm -hmm. and kind of started that working relationship between the two of them, which apparently carries on to this day if you include Dumbo. Um, Beetlejuice apparently made a buttload of money and got the attention of a lot of executives uh and tim burton became the guy that got assigned to batman like kind of a perfect choice but also kind of an obscure choice because think about it's like it's it's kind of like the climate of today in the film market where it's like you mean he has two movies under his belt Mm. that we're gonna give him batman batman Batman? (laughs) (laughs) like okay i mean they what was it they uh the island of dr moreau that director he'd only directed like two garbage movies before that and they're like you're gonna you're gonna wrangle val kilmer and marlon brando good fucking luck dude well that's that's the other thing that I, again we've brought up on the show numerous times without actually talking about one of his films but um i believe that director's name is richard stanley i think you're um, right uh tim burton kind of got the ball rolling 
in terms of that style of uh, acquisition of directors where it's like you have Tim Burton where if you just fucking look at the guy and look at his work it's like okay he has an eye for visuals he has a style that we can we can anticipate he'll bring that to the table if nothing else and in the case of Beetlejuice, that is a weird fucking movie, but it fucking works. See, I love it. <laughs> I mean, I'd say that Tim Burton is one of those directors who's been consistently working, you know, for a long time. And the majority of his body of work, I'd say I like. And he's probably one of my favorite directors as far as his style is concerned. Um, and he, I forget about him sometimes. Like, just, yeah. I, 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 well, his I, output isn't isn't that extensive. He doesn't have that many movies as compared to some other people. He doesn't work all the time. But, no, I mean, the guy fucking shaped my childhood. Yeah. Like, in terms of visual aesthetics, I was so bombarded with his particular style at very key points in my upbringing that, yeah, he's he's one of the biggest influences on me. I I really love most of his work. Most of his work. Most of his work. <laughs> and even the stuff that I don't appreciate, like I I'll still show up. But the the point I'm trying to get at here is that Hollywood started seeking out these kinds of guys because Batman and Batman Returns were such mega hits. They made so much money. Um it made sense to seek out other directors that had that particular skill set where you have guys like Richard Stanley who I'm guessing that was about the mid 90s I think Islander Dr. Moreau was about the mid 90s and like you said he was I believe a South African director did a couple of kind of not surreal but like uh, Mm experimental-esque like highly visual films he only had a couple of them under his belt at that point but you look at the guy and it's like okay he's a Wiccan from South Africa with a strong (laughs) visual sense hmm, Tim Burton made us a lot of money, maybe we should roll the dice on this guy. Didn't exactly work. (laughs) But you had a lot of directors that that was kind of how they got their gigs. And I want to say Tim Burton was probably the catalyst for a a lot of people that maybe weren't the best choices. Like Hollywood was making a lot of gambles on talent like that. Um, Do you want to... I was, say, do you, I, was gonna say, I was about to get on a Coppola rant. I'm like, I probably should just keep that. <laughs> I'll get to the, he was another director that only had, he was an, uh, an Italian-American art, like mostly art films, and then he was uh, poised to do The Godfather, and I'm like, this guy doesn't know how to do shit. And Robert, <laughs> Robert Evans was like, yeah, but he's like a real Italian, and we need a real Italian directing this film. But he didn't have much of a, a filmography before he got that movie. I was going to say, do you want me to run down the plot real quick of uh, 89 so we can get into the uh, the details? Yeah, we may as well talk about the actual fucking movie. So how about you do that? Yeah, so uh, this plot, uh, this is, of course, Batman. We're kind of, we kind of just jump in to his life. Like, he's already been Batmaning a little bit. Not much, but he's been Batmaning a little bit. And he's really, po- he's, he's uh, has to deal with his first villain, uh, the Joker. And this is more or less, the film is just him trying to, to arrest the Joker, to put him into Arkham, so he stops doing his shenanigans. <laughs> that was the flimsiest of plot outlines, but I'll allow it. I'm like, well, I'm, I was like, as I'm talking, I'm like, I really don't know what the real plot is. <laughs> well, actually, a- that's a that's a kind of a universal criticism uh, among like film critics, not me and you. Yeah, right? no. But uh, among like people who get paid to talk about movies, um, that's actually one of the common criticisms of both of the Tim Burton Batman movies is that uh, they play out more like vignettes. Um, yeah. They're very episodic. Uh, particularly in Batman Returns, the structure of that movie is objectively sloppy. 
Um, but I don't care. Yeah. I, I enjoy it so much that I don't care about like the structure of a fucking Batman movie. But yeah, in terms of like plot outline, um, there's a famous quote. Well, actually, I don't think it's famous, but it's one that I'll re- never forget from an interview with Tim Burton where he said, I think it was, uh, I wouldn't know a good script if it hit me in the face or something like that. <laughs> and you think about it for a second, it's like, yeah, I don't think he's good at picking scripts. I think he's good at like, finding ways to tell the particular stories that he wants to tell within someone else's script <laughs> well th- think about you, you like you said batman's been around since what 1939 is that what you said like the comic I believe book so. yeah so we know like i think you kind of have to go in assuming everybody knows the story of batman like he's he's a vigilante his parents are dead he's a billionaire why why mess with it we'll we'll, t- we'll, we'll remind you that his parents are dead but let's just jump in like this is what he's doing well, actually, um, I, I mean, I have a lot to say right now, but um, that's a weird quirk in this first Batman film in 1989, Batman, is that uh, we get introduced to Batman before we're introduced to Bruce Wayne. And then when we're eventually, eventually introduced to Bruce Wayne, we're not explicitly told he's Batman Mm-mm. until way later in the movie. You're Like, the visuals tip you off to the fact that it's like, oh, he has a bat cave, therefore he's probably Batman. But we don't actually see him put on the suit or anything. No, we don't. It's so it's like if you think about it in those terms, like if you were a total like newcomer to the franchise, maybe you would be a little confused. Maybe, <laughs> maybe uh, because I don't. For you, <laughs> I don't think Batman was that ubiquitous in 1989. I mean, the comics were doing very, very well, but comics are forever going to be kind of a niche medium. Like it's only for the hardcore. Um, but then you have like Superman, who's like a cultural icon, like an international cultural icon, where most people know what Krypton is. Most people know the basic outline of Superman's story. But Batman, in 1989, maybe not. Hmm. Um, but the one thing I wanted to point to about your plot summary that's really funny is that uh, Tim Burton's, or I'm not going to call it his interpretation, but the film's interpretation of the character um his Batman is often criticized for killing. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. yes. uh, his Batman fucking kills. And yes. he seems to enjoy it, too. <laughs> There's a couple instances where he gives an action hero smile after or before killing people. <laughs> there is uh, Pete Holmes, the comedian, used to do uh, Batman. Uh, this is kind of shortly after the, uh, the Nolan movies got some traction. They were doing pretty well. And he was making fun of Batman, basically. But there's one with Patton Oswalt where he's playing um, Chester Cobblepot, the Penguin. And he ends up, he's like, you're evil, you kill people, and I'm going to take you to prison. And then these goons keep trying to come get him, and he is just murdering the fuck out of them. And, and the penguin's like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? I thought you said you don't kill. And he's like, oh, no, he's sleeping. It's not a big deal. And he's like, you're after me? Like, why are you guys not arresting this guy? This is that Batman. Yeah, no, he's he is murder Batman. Um, and it makes ben sense. Ben Affleck's Batman will be the same too. <laughs> it makes sense in these movies if you think about it like that. Like you're you're wondering like why are they after him? Like he's he's trying to help, and then you see the body count of Michael Keaton's Batman. And you're like, oh, it's because he's murdering people like crazy. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll we'll get to that. But um, what you said about throwing the Joker in Arkham. That's never the objective from what I can tell. <laughs> like, I think you might be right. <laughs> um, I mean, when he discovers, a spoiler alert, that the Joker, a.k.a. Jack Napier, only in this film, by the way. Usually the Joker doesn't have an identity in the comics. Um, in this film, 
after he discovers that he killed his parents, he basically commits to killing him. In fact, he tells him straight to his face in the climax of the film, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and he's like, whoa, that escalated quickly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't think Arkham is really in the cards for this Joker. Yeah, <laughs> I think Batman true. has committed, an, like at least at the halfway point in the film, to just straight up murdering this clown. <laughs> Pun not intended. Um, <laughs> so we've kind of uh, we've kind of already talked about oh um, the love interest. Of course, there's um, generally um, an, a love interest in the film. Yeah, um, and it's never the same. That's what I've noticed. Um, at least in the Burton to the Schumachers, like the love interest is it's never the same. Like this one, he's kind of going after Vicky Vale. The next one, he is getting I I don't know. Uh, He's kind of flirting with uh, Catwoman a little bit. And then Chase Meridian is... Uh, <laughs> she, she is, is just sopping wet. Single white female <laughs> crazy. Uh, and then Elle McPherson is just... There's dating in that yeah. in that last one. It's like it's not even a component. Like We're not even going to worry about her. Yeah. No. Um, you want to slow it down a bit and try to break this down character by character? Yeah. Um, I'll st- okay. I'm going to start with... Uh, I'll start with Batman, because this is my... F- like. Go is- from the top down? Yeah, go from the top down. Um, Michael Keaton is my favorite Batman. I think he has like a like a, de- like a dead-eyed look about him when he's as the Batman. He does not emote, and he is kind of like... I forgot somebody pointed out, like, he can be very creepy. Uh, Michael Keaton can be. Uh, I think... Beetlejuice, he can be very creepy. He was very creepy, and um, I remember him playing um, a villain in a couple of movies, like in the '90s. Um, so he he does kind of toe that line as being uh, a sinister-looking Batman. Yeah, um, I can't remember the uh, Pacific Heights. Yeah, thank you. Um, my my parents. Uh, oh, that was a parents' rental. Yeah. <laughs> well, they happen to be, uh, they happen to have rental homes, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Mm, that movie is nightmare fuel for anybody who is a landlord. But there's another one where he's a bad guy. He's in prison. I think he's escaping from prison. He's not as scary in that. He's he's a little bit better. Mm, but, I have to go um, back and watch Pacific Heights. I mean, this will this will have to get sorted out as we go. Um, I don't know if he's my favorite Batman, um, but he's definitely, you know, right next to my favorite uh, for sure. Um, yeah, he, he brings an interesting quality to his Bruce Wayne. And what I love about him, what I love about him, especially in this one, in the very first Batman 89, is uh, he is awkward as fuck. Mm-hmm. And it comes across as not, uh, in Christian Bale's case, uh, he's, he's playing a role uh, where you can see him shift into billionaire playboy mode where he's intentionally playing up his derpiness, I guess. Like, he's supposed yeah. to be kind of a doofus. Um See, and kind of petulant, I guess. the The problem with the problem I have with uh, Christian Bale's Batman is this is this is my problem, uh, is that his personal life, Christian Bale's personal life, and his character have kind of seeped into Batman for me, so it kind of ruins it for me. Like I'm like, yeah, I I know you're kind of playing a dick right now, and you're also playing like a, a good like you're playing Bruce Wayne, a good guy, and then you have your facade of Bruce Wayne, the billionaire. But also, I just kind of see him still as like a dick. Like you, you're just—I don't see the actor as much. I see, or I don't see the character as much. I just see the actor, and I'm like, dude, I just kind of know he's a dick. Well, I don't know if I favor, like, if I would fault him for it, but it's an interesting layer to the performance. And let me explain. What I mean is, uh, there, there's this idea that, um, in the case of Superman, 
Clark Kent is the actual person. Superman is the facade. Mm -hmm. In Batman's case, Batman is actually the person. Bruce Wayne is the facade. Mm -hmm. Christian Bale's interpretation of that is to play up the Bruce Wayneiness. Mm -hmm. So Bruce Wayne is totally just like a smoke shield. It's a smoke. Yeah. He's the facade. You know. Yeah. Yes. Whereas in Michael Keaton's case, I think he's actually being fairly genuine, regardless of whether he's wearing the costume or not. Yeah. He's quirky and weird either way, and I kind of like that that he's just he doesn't he doesn't fit in, and I think that's actually um, we'll get to this in a second, but I think that's why the love interest changes from movie to movie. Not. I'm sure casting had a lot to do with that, but um, most of it. But I think it actually fits the character. And uh, in, what I love about Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne slash Batman, though, is that like uh, when we first meet him in his uh, Hall of Armors or whatever with Vicky Vale and Arliss, um, <laughs> Kyle just shook his head. <laughs> yeah, nobody likes Arliss except for uh, apparently the producers because Robert Wall was supposed to die in the movie. Oh, was yeah. he? <laughs> yeah, but they decided to keep him on because he, apparently the producers liked him. I always thought he did die. I mean, it looked like it. Yeah. He got hit. He got thrown into a pile of trash with a bunch of toxic gas in the air. He should have died. <laughs> but anyway, um, I love that scene because we get to meet him in his Hall of Armors and whatnot. And the first time we see him at Wayne Manor, Vicky Vale's like, uh, do you know which one of these guys is Bruce Wayne? And he's like thinking she's just some person coming after his money or whatever. So he's like, I'm not really sure. <laughs> and then he comes up later and she, she's like, oh, you're Bruce Wayne. Are you sure? And he's like, I am now. <laughs> I am now. <laughs> but I just love the awkwardness of that exchange because like there's that line as he's leaving the room. Like, oh, and uh, give Knox a grant because <laughs> he just threw it out there as a joke. Like, oh, like, can I get you anything? He's like, a grant? And he's like, <laughs> and he actually literally does that. He looks him dead in the eyes and just gives like the phoniest of smiles. It's like, <laughs> anyway, hot lady. <laughs> but, and I love that like they come in and they ask him about like opening case of champagne. He's like, I uh, open six. And then he looks at the two other people in the room for confirmation, like six. And they're like, uh, sure, that sounds great. <laughs> and I just love that you, you do get the sense that he's an awkward lonely man living mm -hmm. in a castle above the city and he just doesn't really get people very well <laughs> um but enough about him what about his batman oh his batman yeah um as far as his batman is concerned um i i think he's i think he is both my favorite batman and bruce wayne okay. um both of them um he's not a chatty he's not super chatty he's a one-liner kind of guy uh Val Kilmer's is probably my least favorite, honestly. I'd I'd have to say. I mean, that's. I mean, I I like Val Kilmer in general, just not not as that Batman. And even though that's probably secretly my favorite Batman movie, it's not because of him. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, he's uh, he's more stoic as a Batman. Yeah, uh, stillness mm -hmm. is the word that comes to mind, and part of that is the costume. <laughs> he can't really move very well, but I he incorporate he played that into his performance you know his movements highly restricted and he can only do certain things he can't overexert himself now i will say that um val like you'll remember it from the schumacher one where he busts in through the light it's you can't forget it it's one of the coolest shots in that fucking movie yeah, his entrance your entrance was, was good his, his was better, better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah of course so i do think that some of his batman like his not his interaction so much with characters, but like the fight choreography, like scenes like that where it's a stuntman. Um, there's some pretty cool ones in that movie. 
here it's all style. It's like you see him come down and the wings kind of spread or uh, just like certain shots that make him look cool in this. Yeah, I I don't I don't know. This could be me um, reaching too far, but I want to say that Tim Burton is kind of averse to action. I can see that. I don't think he I don't think he enjoys it. See, like what I mean by that is um, a director like Guillermo del Toro. He likes he likes action. Mm-hmm. He likes violence in his movies. He seems to relish it. Like he enjoys it. Like if you look at if you look at uh, the Hellboy movies, um, the guy with the twirly bladed tonfas and stuff, mm-hmm. that didn't have to be there. <laughs> <laughs> um, Luke Goss as the the uh, the pale elf oh, yeah. guy in the Hellboy two, he didn't need to have those fancy spear tricks. Um, he seems to like stunt work and choreography and like just action in general he seems to actually enjoy incorporating it into his films and then tim burton though i can't really think of much of that in his movies like planet of the apes has some like beat downs and whatnot but it's all really clunky and clumsy seems like he just doesn't have the passion for it and probably just doesn't devote his attention to it i think it's more he's more focused on the aesthetics of it like how does it look like when yeah, Catwoman yeah. when she catches the dude who i think was in predator 2 by the way the yes. uh, <laughs> you yes. know exactly scorpio is ready he's <laughs> <laughs> doing his macho man randy savage on just blasted on coke god i can't we really i know we talked about it you know, like on our second master class or our first master class i can't remember which one but i really want to break down that for that that second movie and talk about well, it master class revisited someday Oof. Because um, that movie's been on my mind recently. I'm like, how the fuck did my parents let me watch that movie? <laughs> it is one of the most violent and sexually explicit movies I've ever, to this day, have yeah, seen. Um, actually, uh, my parents forbade me to watch that one in particular. Uh, I got to see the first one. I got to see Batman Returns. I got to see Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, all that business. But for a long time, actually, Predator 2 was on the naughty list. That one fucked me up. <laughs> <laughs> That one fucked me up. <laughs> That's that movie is brutal. But uh, I was saying like it, it, it's more about the the style of like uh, you see a little bit of violence. Like she stabs the dude with her little fingers, but she does the backflips. Like it's more cool watching her Catwoman around and, instead of actually seeing her fight. Yeah, and it plays into his camera work too. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a lot of very very highly coordinated camera moves. Like one of my favorites in Batman '89 is when he first shows up at Axis Chemicals. And he kind of like swoops down from the ceiling. Yeah. And the camera like glides in and like pushes up under his nose. And it's, it's beautiful. Like it's how you showcase that character with that clunky costume and everything. Um, but yeah, in terms of like fisticuffs and whatnot, his Batman is very limited. Um, and actually it's something that I liked about the Batman the Animated Series. is um, In the comics especially, Batman's always supposed to be like the apex of human performance. He's supposed to be everything that a human being can be in mm-hmm. terms of like agility and strength and whatnot. Um, and in the Batman, the animated series and the Tim Burton films, uh, he hits you once and you're down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I always kind of like that because, uh, you know, fanciful, elaborate choreography is fun and whatnot. But when you have a character that's supposed to be as capable as him, it should be just like, yeah, done, you know, and, that that iconic backhand around the corner in Batman 89 and he even does it in Batman Returns also and he did it in the animated series all the time I call that the Batman where you you Batman someone it's a fucking verb where where somebody's walking around a corner they don't see you and then you just flip up your hand and bop them in the nose and they go to sleep um yeah a lot of Tim Burton's Batman action consists of that it's just like one kick or one palm strike to the face and you're down 
Um, but yeah, stillness, like I said, that's the word that comes to mind, is economy of motion and, and of words. Um, different movie, but Batman Returns, one of, one of the cooler moments that I noticed upon most recently re-watching the film is uh, when he first meets the Penguin. Um, he rounds a corner and they, they have a little tete-a-tete, and uh, the Penguin says he basically is taunting him saying like oh my my guys are gonna blow up the city and by the way i'm probably gonna be mayor and whatnot and batman doesn't say anything he just stares at him and mm-hmm. the penguin's expression changes from his gnarly smile his danny devito face to like he turns it into like a frown he's like you don't really think you'll win do you <laughs> he's like kind of getting in his head a little bit where he's like by not feeding him anything he's like oh you you think about it <laughs> it's like yeah. i'll just let you defeat yourself and um, yeah, uh, economy of everything seems to be his interpretation of the character. But um, the bat suit, how do you feel about the bat suit and the gadgets, Kyle? Um, so I mean, you have to, you have to, grappling hook, always like it always has to be here. You have to watch the grappling hook go through or wrap around something. It's important in the first four Batman films that that happens. Um, I always like that. I'm like, oh, there it is. Uh, the the gadgets in this one, um, I I feel like they're pretty basic at this point. It's more like zip, like kind of zip lines and you know grappling hook that like rolls you up. Um, I can't think of the, what are some of the other ones in this one. Actually, you're right. It is fairly sparse, but it's also um, maybe it's like carryover or remnants from Batman uh, Adam yeah. West Batman. Yeah. Uh, there's some weird stuff in there that's it's absurdly specialized like for instance um the uh, palm like plate the steel plate that comes out of his wrist and the finale when the guy jumps at him with the bladed uh feet mm-hmm. um he has just some sort of steel plate that flips out in front of his hand it's like why why would you have that <laughs> it's like what is that and then there's the zip line thing that he holds in front of the joker's face at the art museum yeah it's a zip line but it looks like a gun and yeah he holds it right in his front of his face and you know, smoke bombs and whatnot. I don't think he gets a batarang until Batman returns. I and think... the big one, though, Kyle, that I'm really glad you brought up is the grappling hook. Mm. Because this film introduced the grappling hook. Mm. The grappling hook did not exist in the Batman comics. Interesting. Because mm-hmm. it, it was necessary for the first four that they each make an appearance. Yes, he had a grap- he had a grap- like a grappling hook, but he didn't get the gun, like the the pressurized launcher or whatever until this movie and like you said it was it became a key component of the character in fact it, those video games the arkham games it allows you to fucking fly mm-hmm. i played it makes them, yeah it, it makes those games playable um, yeah. in order to you know traverse arkham city and whatnot but yeah the the animated series kind of like solidified it where it's like the tim burton movies got the ball rolling but the animated series made it like this just like all important tool in his utility belt and yeah, yeah, like you said, forevermore. It's like you cannot think of Batman without thinking of the grappling gun. The 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 vehicle as well. The vehicle has been the like in the Adam West show. The vehicle is very important. Uh, it's somewhat important here. Uh, the main thing is that it has a shield, like a blast shield that they can't get through. That's really the only thing that the car does in this. But I think they introduced the Batwing in this. Was this something before, like the the plane? I believe the Batwing was in the comics at that point. Okay. Um, and like I think he had a bat gyrocopter and all manner of bat things. Uh, the Adam West show, obviously, every bat everything. Like bat salt shaker, <laughs> bat moo moo. <laughs> but um, yeah, the Batmobile in this one, 
is the design of it is absolutely iconic um it's a little chunky and you can tell it probably didn't drive very well but it looks amazing i love the flame jet coming out the back and of course mm. the wings in the in the rear of it uh and uh some of the tools embedded in it are pretty fucking cool like uh again speaking to its lack of maneuverability i love that it has like the grappling hook to help it do a tight turn and then uh there's the the sequence when he blows up axis chemicals where it we get to see that he is indeed murder batman because he mm-hmm. has machine guns and fucking rockets on his batmobile you can't tell me those are for anything other than murder <laughs> nobody <laughs> um, needs an assault rifle for anything exactly <laughs> but he has like four machine no two machine guns and like four rockets on that thing so yeah he's prepped and ready for murder um but yeah the batwing um my brother always tried to point out to me like he always tried to hammer home the point that's like you need to understand the Batwing was the shit. <laughs> like, like, for people of a certain age, when you saw the Batwing, you were like, holy fucking shit, that's cool. Batman Forever, I had a ton of toys from that movie, including that Bat that Batmobile, uh, which was awesome. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry, Batman and Robin, I had that one. Oh, was that the one with the rotating thing in the front? It had lights. One, one of them yeah. had lights, yeah. It has like it has like some sort of cone underneath the hood that mm-hmm. like it rotates and has lights coming out. And then it has the gigantic spoiler, like the spike thing. I gotta rewatch those. Oh. Did you have the Did you have the icy version or the normal version? I had the icy version. Nice. So, like Commissioner Gordon, yeah. uh, it you literally it's either Pat Hingle or um or oh my god I can't think of his fucking name. Why can I never remember his name? Gary Oldman. Yeah. Um, I, it, he's such, like, Gary Oldman is, is fine as Commissioner Gordon, but the, it, he's inconsequential to me. Like, it's like, he doesn't really matter to me as a character. We'll get to him. Um, but what's interesting is that in the comics and in most Batman media, uh, including the animated series, and maybe even especially the animated series, Commissioner Gordon is an essential character. Mm. Um, he's absolutely important to the story. Um, He's irrelevant in, I think, these two movies. Oh, in all four of them. Yeah. Uh, Pat Hingle is, is Commissioner Gordon in all four of the irrelevant, first Batman movies. Yeah. No, so he's say, totally irrelevant. Like, <laughs> the Gordon one, I'm like, yeah, he makes a difference. Like, he's a part of the plot in all three of those movies. Huge part of the first one. Um, yeah. Well, you, the Batman Begins movies, and like I said, we'll talk about this next week, but um, those movies were heavily inspired by Batman Year One. Um, which is a comic series written by Frank Miller. And uh, James Gordon's story kind of parallels that of Bruce Wayne, um, just like in the movie kind of, um, although much more so in the comic book. And they kind of play up that angle, but like I said, like you said, um, yeah, Gary Oldman doesn't quite have enough to do, but I have some stuff to say about his performance that I'll save for next week. But yeah, Pat Hingle is here. Um the only interesting thing that I'll say about him in Batman 89 is that uh, we do get to see some evidence that uh, GCPD, the Gotham City Police Department, is uh, corrupt uh, in the form yes. of Eckhart. Yes, Eckhart. Uh, William Hootkins. <laughs> most fun name to say. Uh, that would be Jack Porkins from uh, Star Wars. Star Wars. Four. Um, fluent in Mandarin, by the way. I looked no him up. shit. Yeah, uh, William Hootkins. Very interesting fellow. He was like a professor in fluent in Mandarin. And yeah. apparently he was living in the UK um, for a stretch of time, which is why he was in Star Wars, because they filmed it in mm. London. And then this one as well, they filmed on sound stages in London. Nice. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, uh, we see that some aspects of Gotham PD are corrupt. 
Commissioner Gordon is not. Um, and in uh, Batman 89, uh, the big thing is that Batman doesn't have a working relationship with the police yet. You, yeah. you, you hinted at that already. But yeah, Batman is very much an active vigilante, and Chris, Commissioner Gordon wants his collar. Um, but after talk- the first movie, they kind of move on. Can we talk about Alfred? Because that's the other like main character. Uh, He's. I think it's the two of them, the only two people there in all four of these yeah. 80s and 90s Batman. Movies. Oh well, Michael Go was the butler. Was the butler through all four of these? So, um, yeah. like have, after watching a little bit of Downton Abbey and seeing how people th- like like you think that oh no he's just an old man he's just a servant he's a butler it's like it sucks that that's his job I'm like no 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 these were jobs but also how you justified it was that. They fucking love those jobs because they weren't in a fucking factory. Like these were like these were like prestige positions to have. Like people wanted to work in these positions. So at this point, I'm like, the man is so old, he has no other skills. And it's something that's more brought up in the Schumacher Batman when uh, Alicia Silverstone comes in. She's like, You've got my my old uh my old uh uncle like serving you guys. I'm like, I mean, this is a pretty big place. I think he's Butler's basically oversee. They don't work. They oversee everything. And you see that in the Bruce Nolan Batman movies where Michael Caine is like telling everybody, hey, don't go into this fucking, this this wing of the uh, house. I already told you people that. So I, I think they had like kind of a misconception of what Alfred was supposed to be. He just brings him his food like once or twice. But I think he's overseeing everybody. But I personally like Michael Go as uh, Alfred. Because Michael Caine has kind of gotten to the point where he's like Denzel, where it's not Michael Caine playing a character, it's a character as Michael Caine, basically. Well, Morgan Freeman's guilty of that, too. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, same franchise. Uh, Yeah, my my mom always pointed to, like, young Morgan Freeman as being very different from what what we're used to now. Stan and... What the fuck is that? Where he's the principal? It's I'd never seen uh, a Morgan Freeman movie that old. I think it's Stand and Deliver, or it's not Stand by Me, but he plays <laughs> he plays an inner city uh, high school principal who's getting the place into shape, and he's really good. Gotcha. Uh, so speaking of Morgan Freeman, we don't have a Lucius Fox in no. in the Tim Burton movies, so we'll just skip that. But um, yeah, uh, Michael Go as a uh, as Alfred Pennyworth is uh, he's very charming mm-hmm. i love that he i love that he puts bruce in his place all the time he dresses him down yes um but but not eloquently. not in like a yeah eloquent eloquent um, not um jeremy irons kind of does a similar thing um in uh the Zack snyder movies um but michael go just has that special touch that mm-hmm. just it, it just works so well and i uh, i love that they they really do have like a, a loving relationship between the two of them where you can tell like there's that scene like after he has dinner with vicky vale where they're in the kitchen and Alfred's just kind of shit talking him in front of him. And he's yeah. like, "Well, I think I've embarrassed him enough. <laughs> Good night." <laughs> you know who would make a nice bitchy uh, uh, Alfred would be Rupert Everett. <laughs> Rupert Everett, yes. Give him a few more years. Let him. Oh, that would be cool. He would be too colorful for this new Batman. You need a. You need a different. A different take on that. Uh, Sir Ian McKellen, I think, would have made a real bitchy Ooh. Alfred. Ooh, yes, that yes, more of that. Um, oh, so oh, you think that's a good idea then? Hmm. <laughs> 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 you just slip behind corners going. Hmm. <laughs> oh, speaking of which, though, um, do you know who the new Alfred is in the Batman? Oh, please tell me. I can't wait. Who is it? Andy Circus. Andy Circus. Okay. Yeah. I'm down um, with that. I think that's a magnificent choice because something that this Alfred, 
um, the the 80s and 90s Alfred never had was in the comics and in the animated series, in fact. There's an entire episode dedicated to Alfred doing his own detective work, independent of Bruce Wayne. No kidding. Um, in the comics, he's supposed to be like former British Secret Service. Oh. So he's a capable guy. He's that older, makes sense. but yeah. he had a life of adventure before he became a butler. Um, and Andy Serkis strikes me as a guy that can have some physicality to him so i wouldn't be surprised at all if we have action alfred in the batman um we hear his voice in the trailer i don't think we see him though um but anyway moving on the cast of characters here uh you want to tackle vicky vale and then move on to the joker yeah she's uh, annoying uh <laughs> yes probably yes. the most annoying of any of like el mcpherson's not even a part of that movie like the batman and robin you, you could just, whoop, just plop her right out she has nothing to do with that film um nicole kidman is just kidnapped like she's just kidnapped in a batman forever she's i have i have a lot to say about i was gonna her, say but we'll, sa- we'll save it for next week there's something yeah there's a completely different conversation uh, for what, she, what her purpose is. Vicky Vale is just kind of annoying in this. Uh, she's kind of like, uh, what's that second Temple of Doom? She's kind of like the, the lady in Temple of Doom. Willie. Willie. Yeah. Uh, she just, I don't really know what, she, she's just to be kidnapped here. She's just for him to get back. So I have a little bit of a theory that I've been kicking around in just like the past 24 hours. So bear with me here. Um, so yeah, Vicky Vale is kind of a one note character. Um, I started to notice, like I just ran through his filmography in my head and uh, we all know that Tim Burton has a thing for big eyes. Um, mm-hmm. He loves big eyes on his actors. I think it's just a thing that he likes. It's a part of his aesthetic. Um, but he also has a fascination, I think, with blondes. Um, I think blondes right. with big eyes because Winona Ryder didn't have to be blonde in Edward Scissorhands. She looks uh, terrible blonde, to be honest. Christina Still, Ricci. Christina Ricci certainly didn't need to be blonde in Sleepy I, Hollow. I got about halfway through the Adams family. That girl has the blackest hair I've ever seen. They might have yes. been they might have dyed it for that movie, but I'm like, I don't think they did. <laughs> I think she no, legit they didn't has... do they did not do a good job because <laughs> it looks awful. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, no, I didn't I did not pick up on that. Yeah. I think even his uh wife did she have black hair in Sleepy Hollow? The the one in the dreams? Or did she oh, have... no. No, she had dark hair. Okay. Lisa Marie. She yeah, Lisa Marie. Um, but in Mars Attack, she had blonde hair. She mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. And Sarah Jessica Parker in both Ed Wood and Mars Attacks. Blonde hair. Mm, big eyes. Um, but what I'm getting at here is that Vicky Vale is, like you said, not there's not much. She's a mm. photojournalist. She is from the comics. Um, I don't know that much about her she comes and goes um, depending on the writer but um, in this movie I have this theory that our Bruce Wayne maybe is like a stand-in for Tim Burton in some way because like like I said he seems to have a thing about blondes and in both of his Batman movies we have big-eyed blondes that Mm -hmm. he's lusting for and I want to say that like there's an element of sadness to his Bruce Wayne where it's it's not sadness it's like loneliness where it's like like I said he's awkward Mm-hmm. He lives up on this big mansion all alone. There's that funny bit where he says, like, I don't think I've ever been in this room before. And it's played for laughs, but it's like, it might be true. <laughs> well, <laughs> watching the uh, super Death of Superman Lives, his con- like Tim Burton's conversations with Nick Cage, where he's, it's just, it's awkward watching the two because Nick Cage seems like an awkward guy. But Tim Burton has a different kind of awkwardness. And watching the two of them together, I'm like, this is uncomfortable. 
It is. No, it, it's like whenever you meet a new person and you need to find that speech cadence. Like mm-hmm. you need to, like sometimes I'll talk too fast the first time I meet a new person. I realize, oh, I need to slip into their rhythm <laughs> so we can facilitate a conversation here. Otherwise, it's going to be really fucking weird. Yeah. Uh, words per minute, man. It makes a difference. But um, the thing I'm getting at here is that uh, Vicki Vale is a photojournalist. She seems like she has her head on her shoulder. She came to Gotham after doing like a really grisly photo mm-hmm. piece that attracts the attention of both Bruce Wayne and the and Joker. The Joker. Yeah. And what my theory is, is that uh, as like a dark, maybe depraved person, uh, both the Joker and Batman and Oswald Cobblepot, like these are all like people that are a little bit deviant or like a little off the mm, beaten path. And they're kind of, they're seeking someone who can bring them into the light. So Vicki Vale she's touched the darkness she's photographed horribly violent things like death and destruction and whatnot but she's an ordinary person that can she's an ambassador to the real world mm-hmm. so like bruce wayne's like oh she's kind of weird yeah. i'm really weird maybe <laughs> <laughs> like maybe maybe we can like meet in the middle and i can get some of her stuff and like she'll be okay with yeah. my stuff interesting like, i never thought about that I, I i i think there's a reason why we have these destructive strange individuals competing over these with these women that seem to touch that world without dipping their toes all the way into it fascinating because more so in batman returns you can definitely see that because selena there's a reason he gravitates to her immediately interesting and but just so happens that she actually is equally as weird and maybe he's like "Uh, i don't know (laughs) but in vicky vale's case it's like i need you to help me I need you to help me get to where you're at because I've been I've been in the dark for too long. Wow. So I think there's it, it's a stretch, but I think that's why she is the way she is. It just blew um, my fucking mind. <laughs> but um yeah, she has some good scenes in this movie. She's not the good part of those scenes, but she's in the thick of it. But uh big elephant in the room though would be the Joker. So yes, the uh the Joker uh like tiptoeing around this for a while um i just want to say uh like a side note um i love joaquin phoenix um i love him as an actor i love watching his movies and i liked his portrayal of the joker in joker having said that that movie's fucking stupid just gonna go ahead and i'll throw that out there we just lost half of our very small audience thanks for that Kyle. If the people that adored that movie are listening to this podcast, I don't want them to. Um, but yes, the Jack Nicholson Joker. Uh, I'm glad that this is the only iteration, like this type of Joker we've seen. The off-the-wall, dancing crazy. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. We have seen uh, a dancing Joker since then. Hmm. <laughs> you just can't get away from it. <laughs> fucking dance. That's, that's my point, is like... The dancing in that movie is, it takes up 20, like, I think if you, you were to clock it, it takes up 20 minutes of that movie after you add it all up, uh, after it's been dispersed through that film. Uh, the Jack Nicholson Joker, I think, how much was he paid for this, real quick? I think it was like uh, $25 million. It was many millions of dollars, and I think he took a cut of the film's earnings. Ooh. So he had the ultimate contract. And I, th- I want to say my dad told me a long time ago that uh, other other actors followed suit. It was kind of like a WCW where uh, Kevin Nash and Razor Ramon showed up at WCW and they're like, hey, can we have a contract where if anybody shows up that gets paid more than us, we get a bump? 
It's like, sure, we need you right now. It's like, well, I, I hope you're happy paying us more and more and more over the years. Well, well it's interesting uh, with these movies. They actually, Jim Carrey was paid the most money I think any actor had been paid for a film for Batman Forever. Arnold, I think, for Terminator Rise of the Machines, Terminator 3, he was paid $30 million. I think he made $25 million for Batman and Robin. It was an exorbitant amount. I it's, know that much for certain. The the Batman movies, it's like, no, 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 they're going to make money. Whether they're good or not, they're going to make money. And you will pay your actors. You will pay your names for this. Well, I mean, the thing that doesn't get talked about as much is merchandising. Merchandising is where the money's made. (laughs) Yeah. Spaceballs the (laughs) flamethrower. I think overall, that that sounded like Regis. Um, (laughs) The... I think the money, just because it was it, it was made so long ago, I think the money that Star the Star Wars franchise made off of its merchandise was probably higher. But I think the Batman franchise has a run for its money just from this this four this block. Happy of four. meals, motherfucker! Happy Dude, meals. I had so <laughs> many. Ba- I had Batman toys from the animated series. I had Batman toys from these two movies. I had Batman movies from the other two movies. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. But um, Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. Jack fucking nicholson i really love this performance um it it has jack written all over it um but it is a performance like i i challenge anyone to say that's like oh no he's just he's just being jack it's like no no he's not he's he's playing he is playing himself a little bit but it's highly amplified and highly coordinated Mm -hmm. Uh, there's so many small details in this performance that i absolutely love um because the Joker, one of his nicknames in the comics, or self self titled nicknames, self proclaimed <laughs> titles, is uh, the Crown Prince uh, Crown Prince of Cri- Crime. Wow, uh, L's and R's are hard. Uh, yeah, the Clown Prince of Crime, um, and I think he's kind of playing that up. And also, it gives us the the Prince tie-in in the soundtrack. <laughs> but but he's playing that up where as soon as he assumes the identity of the Joker, which doesn't happen immediately, it happens a couple scenes in after we're introduced to his character, um, he kind of, he, he's, he plays like a position of like royalty or something where like he has servants around him all the time and he does very little on his own. And I love that there's always somebody to grab something that he has to like hand off to people. Like he never puts anything away on his own. He just, I love that he holds up his pistol like, he pinches it between his index mm. finger and his thumb and Bob just like grabs it for him. And then there's a scene at the end when uh, he's stepping off the float and when he's stepping off it, a guy goes on all mm-hmm. fours and he steps on his back yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't even pay him any mind. It's beautiful. I love it. I think what makes this performance good is the teetering between I mean, him before Joker is just like a mob bad guy. He doesn't, he's just doesn't really have much personality. He's just kind of a dick. Mm-hmm. He teetered, like the character teeters between dark comedy and menacing, like actually creepy. And it's mm-hmm. perfect because the dark comedy is at times not as funny and then other times it's fucking hilarious. And then, yeah, then he can jump into that. Like after he shot uh, Jack Palance, he sits there and he's like, ooh, like the, that creepy. Like his little creep or like when he'll like he'll he'll switch a little bit and she's like, Are you joking? He's like, Do I look like I'm joking? And it's like, uh yeah. A little uncomfortable. No, I've long said that that's the key to the performance that I to this day I put it I don't put it as the best. I, again, I'm I, I'm that kind of person. I waffle back and forth between what I like the most. Um depends on the day, but 
what I hold in in high regard about this performance is that he's a mean joker. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has an element of meanness to him that it doesn't manifest all the time, but I love when it bubbles to the surface because you can tell that he's kind of nuts and mm-hmm. he's he's started out a certain way and he got pushed off the deep end and now he doesn't really even know where he's at, so he acts on impulse and there's certain times when you push his buttons and uh you get you get the bad joker like when a you know the iconic you want to get nuts let's get nuts before that he's he's telling him his life story back to him and he kind of like spits in his face and the whole time he's smiling and is like wide-eyed at him but deep down you can tell he's like i'm waiting to shoot you yeah i'm waiting to shoot you yeah <laughs> i'm waiting till you have i'm waiting till you're done so yeah. i can kill you and even we'll like body language again very physical performance i love the way he holds up his gun his mouth's open he's just like ah. <laughs> he's, he's like, like how casually he brings it up he's yeah. just so casual and he's just like ah, that's enough well, <laughs> like you have to die <laughs> i think my favorite moment from him is like why didn't he tell why didn't you tell me he had those things bop gun <laughs> yeah. like, why didn't anyway tell me he had one of those things Bop. <laughs> Gun. Oh, it's fucking great. <laughs> oh, um, Bob is Bob is the most loyal of henchmen. I think an impo- important component of the Joker, part of his personality, is that he is funny, and whether that manifests through dark comedy or just his delivery, like Heath Ledger's Joker. One of my favorite moments is where uh, Michael Jai White is getting pissed and he like slams his fist and he's about to come after him and he's got his thumb in the grenades and he's like you think you can just steal from us he's like yeah <laughs> just this dead thing yeah i love that like i think there's overlapping dialogue there mm-hmm. where it's like it's very low on the soundtrack but yeah if you listen and you watch his mouth he's like yeah you think you can just steal from us <laughs> yeah <laughs> the the, the it, it, it's not so much like it's not as much dark comedy it's just like his del- like his delivery and how he interacts with people is funny in the bruce nolan movies um and it's christopher nolan Chris, or did i say bruce nolan yeah <laughs> who's the fuck is bruce nolan am i just bruce, getting bruce wayne slash bruce nolan? Wayne? yeah I, probably I doesn't matter <laughs> but it's nice that he was able to keep like keep that those elements of the joker and make it his own as opposed to fucking jared leto like that that joker had there was nothing to him he was just sitting there he did nothing yeah it really is a nothing performance and he to this day says that it's all on the cutting room floor um there is evidence to suggest that most of that performance was cut out of that film yana i would like to see that evidence please Well, uh, we're about to get this, the Snyder oh, cut. Oh, the of Snyder Justice cut. League. And, That's right. Uh, you know, the Twitter is kind of trying to. I hope this doesn't start a precedent where we have to get two versions of every movie ever released. Um, I don't think I need to see a different version of The Suicide Squad, but we'll see. Anyway, Do you want to see uh, the Scorsese cut of one of his movies where it's fucking five hours long? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want to say that Scorsese is probably the kind of director that's like what you what you got is what he wants. Yeah, yeah. So there's a reason why I don't think he has director's cuts. But no, back to Jack Nicholson, joke, yeah. Joker. Um, yeah, it, what's interesting too is from an aesthetic standpoint, I think this is the only traditional Joker we've ever gotten on film that just straight up looks like the comic book Joker. Yeah, I think you're right. And I kind of dig it. Like mm-hmm. it, it's like it's Technicolor bright. And he has the purple suit most of the time. Uh, he's got the the green hair, like shocking green hair, and he's got the red lipstick and whatnot. He he looks like straight out of the comics. I just say the Heath Ledger one is a little more menacing, like just his makeup being messed up. He's a little creepier, but I think that 
he like the Jack Nicholson one is still menacing, and that's on the performance. Like you can put him like it doesn't matter what you put on this guy, you can make him look like a clown. He's still going to be creepy. Yeah, and it speaks to just his, I don't know, skill as an actor because those early scenes when he's just Jack Napier, mm-hmm. um, I like that we get just like little tiny details that spell out to us what kind of person he is. He's mm-hmm. portrayed as like a narcissistic dude. There's that great moment where. What's the actress? Uh, you, she is not an her. actress. Uh, she is um, actually Mick Jagger's wife, Jerry Jerry Ryan, I believe. Do you remember yeah, that? You, you told me that. Do you remember that SNL skit with uh, Dana Carvey and uh, Mike Myers, where Mike Myers is playing a, um, a Rolling Stones singer, Mick Jagger, and he's like, "I'm so nervous about getting married," and the Keith the Keith Richards is like, "Well, you just gotta remember that you know you love each other." And you've had five kids together. <laughs> that's the that's that's who they're referring to as Jerry, and that's her. Okay. Um, anyway, she plays his uh, girlfriend for the first half of the film, and uh, also uh, Jack Palance's girlfriend as well. Yes. <laughs> so so he's boinking the boss's lady behind his back. That was like in Weekend at Bernie's. He's he's banging the mob boss's wife. If there was ever a woman not to have sex with it is a mob boss's wife yes that's that's mobster 101 (laughs) any or the the daughter or relative of any russian that you think is up to to no good um but yeah he that first scene with them together like he's about to go to a meeting or whatever and she's just like she touches him and she's like oh you look great and he's like i didn't Didn't ask. ask Yeah, and, he's a dick. And yeah, I love that look he gives at her hand when she puts it on his shoulder where it's like, you can tell. And I think he's doing his hair in the mirror, too. So it's mm-hmm. like you get the idea that's like, yeah, he's a little bit older, but at the same time, he's still a very prideful, very narcissistic person. And he has a very me-first attitude, which speaks to him, you know, kind of flouncing about town as the Joker and having a bunch of servants with branded outfits, <laughs> like mm-hmm. bearing his visage on their backs. <laughs> so he's very much about him. And one of my... Maybe the best scene in the whole movie, if you ask me, uh, for him anyway, is a new and improved Joker products. (laughs) (laughs) He's been using brand X. (laughs) I get to smile again and again. (laughs) I think, like, going back and watching these, the commercials kind of get annoying after a little while. Uh, I know it's an important part. Like, that's part of his being menacing to the town of Gotham is him poisoning all these uh products and him like saying oh don't use this i poison that um after a while i just kind of like okay can you do something different please well yeah the, the plot of the movie is threadbare and uh it points to the the script being a problem uh, because uh, something you and i were talking about before uh we started recording was that this new the batman directed by matt reeves uh, something he's been saying uh since day one before like when they're in pre-production is that the story is going to be a a detective story, mm. uh, which to date is something we really haven't gotten from any Batman movies, um, and this this first Batman, Batman eighty nine, is certainly not a detective story. Mm. <laughs> um, it it actually the way it's structured almost makes Batman look incompetent um, because it's like, hmm, chemicals are the problem. Maybe he's at the chemical plant, <laughs> and it's not until the closing like twenty five minutes of the movie where he's like, you know what? I think I'll just drive through that chemical plant and blow it. Blow up. it up, yeah. <laughs> it's like, hmm, it did you even try? But then again, we see him. Uh, maybe that explains it away. He's distracted by Vicky Vale. Um, 
Yeah, that maybe that is a distraction. Um, was there any more characters? Because I feel like those are really the only ones that are reoccurring or worth noting. Mm. Harvey Dent is worth pointing out just because of what could have been, I guess. Um, I don't feel... Uh, yeah, Billy D. Williams. If you're not familiar with Billy D. Williams, he was Lando Calrissian uh, from Star Wars Episode Five and Six. Um, has, a, has a great role in Undercover Brother. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's very charismatic. And I don't, I don't feel if you know, Harvey Dent is Two Face, I just don't know if Ability Williams Two Face would be good. I just don't feel like the man has a mean bone in his body. I feel like he's just too smooth and nice. Yeah, you'd put the makeup appliances on him; it would just like slide off. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Billy, you're too pretty. I can't make you look ugly. <laughs> he's too charming. Like his his voice. He is. Yeah, he is. It just it wouldn't work. So I'm glad that that didn't turn into anything yeah i'm i'm glad like i said uh, the script is not something that tim burton seems to care that much about and harvey dent is one of those characters that you need to write well in order for him to work um it's you Ooh. could argue that he hasn't really even been done on film that well no um, he but, hasn't exactly um so i'm glad we got the penguin instead because i think that's more in tim burton's wheelhouse but the only reason i throw it out there is just because billy d was he signed onto the film like expressly for the purpose of doing a sequel um so he kind of got dicked a little bit but apparently he does the voice of Mm two-face in the lego batman movie so they they yeah they did do that they tried to make it up to him it didn't really matter but you know it's just like what could have been his performance in this movie is nothing he's just kind of there um and again if you were like a newcomer to the franchise you wouldn't even pay him any mind mm-hmm. other than the fact that hey it's billy d <laughs> he i think he would have made a better commissioner gordon i think that would have been kind of fun um mm-hmm. i think his interactions with uh, michael keaton would have been kind of fun who at this time so 89 early 90s ish who would have made a good two-face and, you, and i'm like the two iterations that we have are tommy lee jones and aaron eckhart which he, I, I have my reasons for liking the tommy lee jones one um but the Aaron Eckhart one, I like him as Harvey Dent. I think he's a good Harvey Dent. But him as Two Face was just CGI stupidness for me. Well, maybe uh, <laughs> go with an, a fellow under siege co star, Gary Busey. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he'd be <man>. terrifying. <laughs> Gary Busey Fuck and heavy yeah. makeup like, appliance? <laughs> like an actual Gary Busey? Like Lethal Weapon 1 Gary Busey? Absolutely. I mean, that was 88, I think. Ooh. You might have 89. I don't even I'm like I'm not even like like oh that would be funny. I'm like legit. I think that he could pull that off. I mean, his face is already mangled. Like imagine putting makeup on that. He'd be he'd give kids nightmares. <laughs> Man, that is brilliant. Time machine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um what else we got to say about Batman 89? Anything? Real quick, on the set design in this, I think is worth noting because it is almost like it's a it's still a, t- a Tim Burton set design, but it is completely different than the other Tim Burton set design. Um, I love the like I love the CGI, like the the stuff we do in here with the uh, the bat wing. It's not CGI. Um, what do we call it's, it? It's miniatures and like rear projection and stuff. There we go. Like that. Miniatures and rear projection. Um, and matte paintings too. I, can we just call it MRP? Just the MRP in the film, mirrors rear projection. <laughs> Um, sure. Just keep it, yeah, the, the MRP um, and the map paintings and stuff like that. We're not at Dick Tracy level map paintings, but no. I feel like these are some of my favorite map paintings. Is this film in particular? 
Yeah, actually, that's something that I could be wrong, being as we only got a teaser. Um, but this new The Batman um, has some visual stylings to it that kind of feel reminiscent of the Tim Burton era, mm. and that would be the soundstage era, because Christopher Nolan's Gotham, uh, not so much Joel Schumacher's, but like Christopher Nolan's Gotham was so wide open and lived in that it, the entire concept of that story is that it's a it's a story of a city aka chicago <laughs> um, but like the way it's shot it's like it takes place in in the city streets so there's a lot of open air there's a mm-hmm. lot of space and whatnot whereas like, like the the tim burton movies are almost uh, the joel schumacher movies in particular are very claustrophobic if you ask me like the the buildings even go like sideways at times in his movies where it feels like just a clusterfuck of city mm-hmm. design well, tim like- burton movies like we definitely most of the movie is shot on sound stages and it you can feel the smallness of it but it doesn't feel cloistered at all what is that 90s sci-fi film i think it is william hurt and dark city dark city thank you it uh it has more of a dark city feel yeah no it's an artificial gotham and i kind of like that because it's Mm -hmm. a comic book movie and gotham's not meant to it's meant to be analogous to real life cities but it's the design of Gotham, like in the comics and stuff, is traditionally like all sorts of gothic and weird, such that it couldn't really exist in real life. I love like I love noticing lots. Like you, like if you watch Back to the Future and you watch Gremlins, you're like, it's the same fucking thing. <laughs> it's the same thing. <laughs> um, and yeah, in in this, I like the. You're right. It, it feels small claustrophobic and you can tell it's a soundstage or you can tell yeah. it's like somewhere it's on warner brothers lot like oh yes i i don't know why i know it's fake but it feels more real if that makes any well, sense it's it's charming in that it's purposeful mm-hmm. in that in that every every angle that we're shooting this from is very intentional deliberate yes very deliberate yes very deliberate and i love that like mm-hmm. there's a lot of recurring sets and whatnot and it does get a little bit distracting like we do spend a few too many scenes at like Axis Chemicals and mm-hmm. Batman eighty nine where it's like, mm, did we really need to come back here? <laughs> yeah, and, and then the Penguin's Lair gets reused quite a bit in Batman I, Returns. The lighting but it looks great, film. and I love it. Yeah. yeah, the lighting in that film, especially of his his uh, little area, is one of one of the most haunting things that I can remember. No, Batman Returns is my favorite Batman movie, and a lot of it has to do with the look of it. Mm-hmm. It it has a magnificent look to it, and if you ask me, they they took all the ideas they had in the first film and they executed them to perfection because mm. the bat suit in particular just doesn't look quite right in 89. It's a little grungy. Um, it, it's not perfectly formed. Like you can see that it has like little imperfections in it mm-hmm. all the time. It has a weird texture to the cape and cowl. But by the time you get to Batman Returns, ev- everything, the way that movie is lit, everybody has this lovely like halo around them. It's like this like thin layer of white surrounding their silhouette that just looks amazing especially when you put it on like black leather like catwoman or batman um but yeah <laughs> the, <laughs> production uh, design's a thing the the fireplace i had to look up i'm like did they shoot this in a castle with a fucking fireplace this big or did they build this specifically for like this scene of him because they only really show this room and the bat cave when he's in his house or his bedroom mm-hmm. um uh, the fireplace is this it's like six feet high like it's fucking huge yeah it's like it's like the haunting where uh, owen wilson yeah. lost his head yeah. <laughs> don't lose your head um, um but, but yeah uh, all the tim burton movies and the schumacher movies to a slightly lesser extent um you can tell they're tim burton movies because of the extensive use of miniatures mm-hmm. um, that man loves him some miniatures and there's even some straight up goddamn animation 
mm-hmm. in Batman. Where we the, get the first fucking time yeah. we see Batman is a goddamn cartoon. It is a cartoon, <laughs> yes. It is straight up a cartoon. And then even uh, when the Joker makes his yeah. exit, that is straight up a cartoon. And it's like, what's really funny about that, though, is that Die Hard came out in, what, 88? I think so. Yeah. And it has the greatest instance of a man falling off a building in cinema history. Because they in lied to him. In cinema history. Well, it's not just that. It's the technology that they used to film it. Where yeah. they projected the background plate behind him and dropped him onto it. And the lighting of it is spot perfect, on yeah. perfect. It's seamless. It looks like he's really there. And like it's even layered in such a way where as he's falling, you can see like the light coming out of the windows beneath him. So we have that. And then a year later, we have this animated garbage where it's like five frames of hand-drawn animation of Jack Nicholson falling off a building. It's like the, only the first frame of him looks okay, and then it's like, ah, 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 and then he's out of frame. It's like, what was that? I love the little, the little, the little box that he has in his. <laughs> love it. Um, do you want to hit a guy with glasses? Do you have glasses? Do you want to talk about the music? Oh, I, we can save that for the wrap up because you know two movies back to or no, let's talk about it now. So Danny the, Elfman, Danny say, Elfman did the music. I was gonna say the music is important important in this one because it's Danny Elfman and Prince, and Prince, yeah. and Prince. That's why I was yeah. like we should probably distinguish between the two because the second one is just Danny Elfman for sure. Yeah. So the music in Batman '89, Prince has several songs on the soundtrack. Um, I believe you can pinpoint. In any John Peters production, where John Peters stepped in and said, this is going to be there. And I believe Prince doing the soundtrack was not what he wanted. I think he wanted somebody else to do the soundtrack, but they refused, and Prince was the second choice. It worked out. Yeah. It, it worked out just fine, if you ask me. So I, uh, I mean, if all the scenes with the Joker doing his thing with Prince music mm-hmm. backing, it's like... Party man, party man. <laughs> so I was watching. I watched the uh, the last dance, the uh, the Jordan Bulls '98 uh, documentary with. Mm. I mean, a lot of other stuff. But one of the songs that they have in there, I'm like, uh, they're like showing Jordan highlights for one of the seasons or one of the games, and you just, I'm like, what's this? That sounds familiar. And I'm like, oh, it's Prince. <laughs> it was Party Man. <laughs> the funkiest thing you've ever seen. Party Man. <laughs> My um, one of my professors is a huge Prince fan, so um, I liked her immediately. Uh, I have a couple of very close friends who are huge Prince fans. In fact, I think I spent like one of their birthdays. They just had one of his concert videos on in the background. It was oh, a grand really? old time. Yeah, electric performer. Uh, oh yeah, for like, for sure. I like me some Prince. Yeah, um, his music fits in just fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it suits Jack Nicholson's kind of like goofy quality like yeah. he, he's literally dancing to his music most of the time and some of the songs are just in the background like i think in the very first scene of the movie in the streets of gotham you can hear it on a mm. boom box in the background yeah uh, the lyrics are basically indecipherable because it's so low on the audio track but um yeah danny elfman did the score and much like michael keaton's casting um apparently a lot of people were critical of that before mm. we got the end result because danny elfman was the ongo boingo guy um, he and his weird fucking family made their, what, The Forbidden Zone or whatever. It's like a weird art house film. And then Oingo Boingo was, you know, a you know a very eclectic band that made all sorts of strange music. I actually happen to like a lot of their music. It's mm. great. 
Um, Dead Man's Party is a grand old time. <laughs> I love that. But um, he also did the score for uh, both Beetlejuice and Pee-wee's Big Adventure, though. So he and Tim Burton had a working relationship. And if you just like take a glance at Tim Burton's filmography, you can tell that he has people he likes. Mm-hmm. And I want to say the two of them had a had a good time working together. Um, apparently they had a falling out, though. Really? Um, they got back together, but Ed Wood, he did not do the score for Interesting. Because they, they had a disagreement or something. No, um, do you he, think it was literally... <laughs> do you think it was Tim Burton is like, Danny, you can't work on this film with me unless you can learn to open your mind and learn to play the fucking theremin. <laughs> <laughs> no, it would have been the other way around because Danny Elfman apparently is an accomplished musician. He can play anything you put in front of him. But... Um, he might be difficult to work with, actually, because the same thing happened on the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Hmm. Uh, he did not score Spider-Man 3. Um, yeah, because that was going to make a fucking difference. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, one, of his, uh, one of his, not his understudies, but uh, the fellow that composed the Hellraiser movies did it instead. And I guess he was working with Danny Elfman on the first two Spider-Man movies, and then Sam Raimi and Danny Elfman like, traded words or something, and he didn't want to work on it anymore I, it probably had something to do with the tone of the film he's like may, like maybe what elfman was trying to do just didn't match the tone for raimi he's just like no well, this isn't by the I'm time the- you get to the end of that sam raimi didn't want to make that movie no. so <laughs> it's like i'm pretty sure everyone he's was like, upset I, maybe he's just like, i'm gonna give you an out okay i'm just gonna tell you that uh, i'm just gonna tell everybody that we had a falling out you don't have to do the fucking movie it's okay i mean sam raimi seems like a chill guy maybe he's like just just blame it on me just tell him I was a dick. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, if anyone asks, I hit you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the score is magnificent. Um, the, I remember we actually, my parents had the uh, the VHS, like the actual official VHS of this movie. And uh, one of the critic quotes on the back of the box just said, in quotes, a triumph. Mm. And you may as well point to that as like an, a description of the score for this movie. Because the theme for batman like it's the first fucking thing we get in the movie and it's magnificent it's like totally synonymous with the character to the extent that's like even in other movies like i think actually they used it in the Zack snyder justice league did they yeah danny elfman is credited on the score see i now that i'm thinking about it i can hear the batman forever score in my head like it's like like i'll have a lot of my brain i'll have a lot to say about that when we get to it that's like I, I like I said like I don't notice notice the soundtrack but I've seen that movie enough and it's no like it's noticeable enough that I'm like I I can hear it in my head right now like I know it yeah uh, the Danny Elfman score for the first film in particular though it's it's grand it's gothic um, he does the Batman bits equally as well as he does the Joker bits um, it's tremendous tremendous, it's tremendous. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I uh, enough cannot be said about his work on the batman films um he kind of set the tone for superhero movies going forward for quite some time <laughs> there's a reason he did spider-man <laughs> yeah. that way in 2000 fucking two um what else we gotta say about batman 89 or should we move it along i think we should probably move it along that's about all i had to say about that um overall i think this is probably my I mean, do you want to do you want to rank where it is, or do you want to wait till we get to the end? And kind of. Talk let's about wait till them. we get to yeah. the end. Okay. I'm kind well, of wishy washy about that kind of stuff, so let's let's save it. Let's shift gears to Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So this was '91, if I'm not mistaken. I believe you're right, but I'll double check. Yeah. 
Um, not much is like, uh, let's see here, personal history with this one. Um, this one also with 89 is one that I saw after, um, after Batman Forever. Um, this I actually, when I was younger, I liked 89 a little bit more than I liked this one. And then the older I got, I liked this one a little bit. I liked this one more. Okay. Um, I This was the very first Batman movie I ever saw. Um, I think I saw the cartoon, though, uh, the animated series, long before I saw this movie. But like I said, we had this on bootleg VHS. We did own the official VHS for Batman 89, but that was one of those movies that was on the naughty list for some reason. Mm. Um, so I didn't get around to it until after this one, which is kind of weird. <laughs> um, but remember, the version of it I saw was edited for television. So some of the scarier, more violent parts were cut out but yeah this was the first and my favorite and uh a lot of the a lot of the best components of that first film came back for this one i mean we get tim burton in the director's seat again this time with even greater creative control because he made warner brothers all the fucking money all the money and he had all the control yeah Uh, michael keaton's back and he's fantastic although his screen time is severely limited it really is there's too like you've got too many charismatic people in this uh and i think the the big problem comes with christopher walken because i'd say that he has arguably more presence than michael keaton just in general um and you throw him in the mix and like you have to give him more more uh screen time like he needed more screen time in Wayne's World too, and he still has quite a bit. Of, it, he, he's still a huge part of that movie, but yeah, he needed more screen time in that. Yeah, he's a he is such a screen presence. Like he just has a like arresting is the word that comes to mind, where he yeah. shows up and you just you just find yourself like unable to look away. Where it's like, what the fuck is what is his deal? <laughs> I watched that everybody dance now compilation of him dancing in all of his movies. I watch it once maybe twice a year (laughs) i fucking love watching that well the thing with him is that his line delivery is a lot of people pride themselves on doing christopher walken impressions you and i try every once in a while i don't think you actually can do it though because that's part of his quality as a person and as an actor is that he's going to give you just his own delivery of any lines you feed him it's the cadence and the the emphasis they puts on his words it, it's like all over the fucking place well <laughs> one thing that i think people forget about uh christopher walken is that he's very he, he can be very sinister like he can be very menacing uh and he like especially his conversation with uh, uh dennis hopper in true romance where he's just like yeah i'm getting real tired of asking the same questions and you can tell that he is really tired of asking the same questions well the other word that comes to mind is disarming as an actor, I would be terrified to work with this guy. Yes. Because I have no fucking clue what's going through his head. He's like a fucking dog. Like a fucking wild dog. <laughs> you hope that he's not a James Woods where he plays a piece of shit and is a piece of shit in real life. You like you hope that you he like, Christopher Walken can be very scary and you hope that he's not like really scary in real life. <laughs> I don't think he's scary. He's probably just enigmatic. Or it's just like you you every time you think you know where he's going, you just so, oh, okay. <laughs> Are you doing that now? But speaking of Christopher Walken, he's a key component of the plot of this movie. Even yes. though he's a unique addition to the cast, he's not from the comics. Um, that's a very strange thing in a superhero movie. But uh, do you want to give a plot synopsis? Like your best interpretation of it? Because it is a little all over the place. It's a little all over the place. So um, Batman is back, and he has to deal with a couple of villains. Um, Max Shrek is looking at 
looks like federal federal charges for something uh, that the penguin has come across, and in exchange for for the penguin blackmails him into finding out who his parents are, and that's what he says he wants to do. But really, what he wants to do is he wants to I don't know. He wants to be mayor, but he also wants to kill Batman. I don't know what his end game is really. I think he just wants to, honestly, actually, I think the Penguin just wants to get laid. I think that's his whole, like, his whole motivation in the film is to get laid. Um, and he has to try to wrangle the Penguin and Catwoman, who has kind of knocked a screw loose and is just kind of going nuts. There's no real plot aside from they're trying to get Batman and Batman is trying to get them. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah that's about as good as I could do. Um so some of the subtleties of that, though, are that uh, this movie belongs to the Penguin, um, if yes. you ask me. He he is your central character. Every uh, wannabe film critic on the internet uh, was racing to be the first one to say that Infinity War is about Thanos. He's the main character. It's like, no fucking shit. No it's shit. Like, it's like, you think you're special because you noticed that? Jeez. Like, have you seen a fucking movie before? You may think it's about Robert Downey Jr., but it's not. <laughs> it's like, no, it's it's the most obvious fucking thing in the world. Yes, that movie's about Thanos. We get it. But Batman Returns is kind of a clusterfuck in terms of structuring and scripting and whatnot. Who cares? Yeah, it's, it's fine. It's a, it's a look and feel kind of movie. And also the performances. Everybody shows up. Mm. Everybody knocks it out of the park with this one. Um and yeah, if you ask me, this movie begins and ends with the penguin. Like he's the first thing we see in this movie, and actually, yeah. um, that's one of the cooler sequences. Something I I, I wanted to bring up um, about Batman '89 before we get to this one in proper, and it, I think it's a smooth transition, is uh, the flashback sequence of Bruce Wayne's parents being killed, um, because that is going to be a recurring thing in all of these films. So yes. that's something we should cover. <laughs> Um, we don't get a replay of it in Batman Returns, but in Batman 89, we get that extended sequence where um, it's a flashback and Bruce Wayne recalls how it all went down. And I love that sequence. Um, a lot of people really hate that Jack Napier slash the Joker was the the person who killed his parents. I I don't like that either, but in the context of the film, I think it's fine. Yeah. Um, in the comics traditionally it's just it's either joe chill or it's an anonymous person who just slips into the darkness never to be seen again i think schumacher addresses it uh pretty well in batman forever where the silhouette resembles tommy lee jones like it could be tommy lee jones but he says in the film he's like i just project whoever i'm going after onto that like whoever it is and i'm like that's that's a good way to think of it that is. And traditionally, that's how it is. That's the point. That's the reason why he has this endless fight against street crime is because he never caught that person, nor will he ever. Um, but I love that dream sequence just because of the how skillful the filmmaking is. Because like, uh, the soundtrack has like an ethereal quality to it. The shots and the editing mm-hmm. is, is very dreamlike. I love that there's an echo on all the sounds. Hey, kid. <laughs> See you around, kid. He, I mean, that's the dude. I, I remember watching it, and I think I texted you immediately. I'm like, oh, my God, doesn't he look like our former co-worker? Like, exactly. It's terrifying. How yeah, if, you, looks, if like, you give him a better hairdo. Yeah. yeah. But yeah that would be just him. like him. <laughs> um, better better skin and better hair and yeah. yeah that would be him for yeah. sure <laughs> he knows who he is but yeah. um, he's not listening he's not, <laughs> he, he's he does so not, not give, he does not give two shits about us <laughs> but um, anyway I just wanted to point to that flashback as being a 
a really skillful yes. moment of filmmaking in that movie. But um, this movie, Batman Returns, also begins with not a flashback, but something that takes place 33 years in the past. And that would be the birth of the Penguin. Fun fact, uh, this was actually supposed to be played by um, not not Eartha Kitt, but I think somebody, uh, another female performer from the uh, Batman uh, movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bur- Burgess Meredith was supposed to play the Penguin's dad. Oh, right? Been, oh. <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we got Paul Rubens instead. Yeah. Um, Which is fine. Yeah. It works. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, fun fact about uh, about Tim Burton's filmography. Um, this has not manifested in his films, but as like behind the scenes details, um, he seemed to have a thing about pushing for having black actors in his films ever since the beginning. Like ever since the beginning, I think he wanted Sammy Davis Jr. to be the Joker. Um, and well, like almost <laughs> like almost all of his movies, he had some some person of color picked out to be a headlining member of his cast and he always kind of got uh got the kibosh in the in the boardroom or whatever <laughs> man huh was he <laughs> was jack nicholson he was friends with sinatra right like they I they know probably he, they probably met they, they probably, probably had drinks together <laughs> yeah i'm just trying to think of like some booze buddies that he would want like jack nicholson would want oh uh actually the guy who plays bob is one of his friends, and he insists that he, or not maybe not insisted, but he was like, you should give him a part or give him a chance to read for <laughs> hey, a part. Hey, Tim, you should give my friend a role. <laughs> he was yeah. probably such a bully to Tim. Oh, I'm sure he was. Like, thinking about where he was in his career and where he, yeah. it, it, like, so I say, it's like Richard Stanley trying to wrangle Marlon Brando. It's like, of course you couldn't get a fucking good movie. You got the most difficult actor to work with in history. And Val Kilmer, who is also a difficult person to work with. <laughs> Yeah, but um, yeah, we get Paul Rubens as a uh, Oswald Cobblepot, aka the Penguin's father. Um, and again, I love this sequence. Uh, it's the opening minutes of the film, and we get to see this luxurious mansion and this like wealthy couple, and then they toss their fucking baby in the yeah. sewer. <laughs> this is um, a Christmas movie for me too. That that's another thing I want to say. Is. Like this is one I. That's why I was like I was on the fence about rewatching it for discussing this because I wanted it fresh in my head. I'm like I don't want to waste it. I want to wait until December when I can watch this movie when it's snowing. Yeah, no, it, it is a Christmas movie, um, and it speaks to everything about the production design and the soundtrack in particular. Um, there, there is like a little bit of like a John Williams Home Alone quality to the the mm. choir in this film. Um, but if you ask me, this is Danny Elfman's um, masterpiece in terms of film scores. Mm. I have listened to this soundtrack front to back. Yeah. so many times so i know this one this one's highly revered by you yes uh, it's it reminds me of uh conan the barbarian um mm. n- not a similar sound at all i was gonna say not <laughs> like, at all maybe i'm misremembering the sound but what i mean by that is it's almost like an opera where you you can play the whole movie back in your head just by listening to the music because the, the music is so incredibly intertwined with the visual aspect of it that's like I, I can play this whole movie back in my head just listening to the music. See, I can play the mu- movie back listening to the music if I was to listen to Batman uh, forever because I'm actually listening to it in my head and I can see the circus, like them going to the circus in that movie. I'm like, wow. We will get to that. But we will I, get to that. <laughs> I am not a huge fan of that score. I love the themes. Uh, the Batman a- theme is, is comparable to the 
the Danny Elfman theme, but the rest of the score it's is abrasive. a little bit. It's abrasive. It's abrasive. Yes, yeah, but but you have to match. Think about what, what they're doing. They're trying to match the intensity of Jim Carrey at that time, one of the most animated actors in history. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. We'll get to I'm, that. I'm so glad to hear you use the word abrasive to describe it because that yeah that is accurate. It's, <laughs> it's coming at you. It's aggressive. Yeah, um, but. You want to want to tackle the characters for this one? Yeah, I think that um, the like you said, like there's not that much Bruce Wayne, like there's not that much Michael Keaton in general in this, um, and I don't really think there's a lot of differences in the performance, in my opinion. Like I still think he's, I think he's settled a bit more. He seems more sure of himself, especially because we get to see him actually be a businessman here. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Where we get to see him like with Max try Shrek, to match, yeah. yeah, we get to see him match match wits with Max Shrek. So we get to see him actually be, I don't know, stern and forceful, mm-hmm. and also like seems like he's I don't know just a little bit more confident in himself. He has a few more miles on him, um, and most of his interactions though, as Bruce Wayne, come about in the form of his interactions with uh, Selena Kyle, yeah, uh, Catwoman. Um, and he he really plays up the uncertainty of their relationship because, like I said about Vicky Vale, it's like Vicky Vale is a mostly normal person who can who can empathize with his weirdness. Selena Kyle is his equal <laughs> in every in every like way in terms of weirdness, yeah, and he, it puts him on his heels to the extreme. <laughs> see, Vicky Vale's chasing him a bit, and not for his money. She's just, I think she's, well, she's interested. She's trying to save him. Like, there's that scene where he's trying to tell her he's Batman, and he take. It's almost like he's like coming out of the closet to her, <laughs> yeah. and he takes his time. It takes minutes for him to get the words out. Yeah. And she's like, "Hey, hey, it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to." Say yeah, it. and she, you get the sense that she's like, "You need to let me in." And there's a reason why she's not in the second film because he probably didn't. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, to say, but like in this, like Michelle Pfeiffer, like uh, Selena Kyle, like he's chasing her. Like she's like elusive. Like he's trying to, he's trying to get her. He is smitten. Yeah, uh, first time he lays eyes on her, he's tripping over his words. Um, I, I mean, it is like like Michelle Pfeiffer at the time. Good God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it, she she works for everyone. I don't care who you are, but <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> I think I was becoming aware of my sexuality <laughs> around, the, around the time that I watched this. I'm picturing young Kyle sitting on the floor, not on the couch, going. <gasps> It moved. <laughs> I've read on IMDb that whatever posters they were putting out for promotion for this film are worth a, a lot, quite a bit of money because they kept being stolen. And I think it might have been her in the like her silhouette or maybe her in the costume. And people were like, I am going to jerk off to this. If I remember right, she's like voguing in the center of that poster. Possibly. It's, it's, it's the, the bat, the cat, and the bird is i think the tag it, it's line. not that poster it's a different poster they had oh. to they had to stop making them that's why i'm saying if they were worth a little bit of money is because they stopped printing them because people kept stealing them well if it's her like laying down like being Catwoman, mm. <laughs> in 1992 right. when porn was hard to get like, yeah um, oh no she hated she hated doing this movie because she hated being she's like no 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 that suit was skin tight it looks skin tight and like oh was it like spandex like no it was it was sewn on no, the, the the centerpiece of the outfit is a corset. You can yeah. see it clear as day, especially in HD. But um, and she's also regardless- a twig. <laughs> That's the other thing is like she's like she's she's a twig. Like 
like getting that like how could you make her any skinnier with that like ugh. well regardless of her feelings on the film uh, her performance is tremendous mm-hmm. um, she really goes for it and uh, even her physicality like the way she handles that whip like you can tell that there's certain shots that are shot in such a way that's like yeah that's her yeah. she's handling that fucking whip and that shit's dangerous man <laughs> like um but yeah she she really gives a, a solid layered performance but yeah uh, all i'll say about bruce wayne slash batman this is um he does get a few new toys on his utility belt um we get to see a couple of new tricks from his batmobile um we get that scene where uh, his his batmobile gets hijacked by the penguin mm-hmm. and i uh, goes on a war goes on the war path through the streets of gotham and uh, he gets to demonstrate that new trick where, oh, by the way, the shields this time, instead of stop motion, are now CGI. Yes. This is 1992, and that is becoming a thing in Hollywood. Um, looked fucking bitching back then. Even the uh, even the uh, remote control batarang that he throws, it mm-hmm. looks okay. It, it, it's not amazing, but it looks okay. So with the gadgeting, mm. the, the amount of time and effort that the the penguins putting in off screen into making these gadgets is ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Like <laughs> it's a very absurd movie, but yes, I'll I'll allow it. The I think in particular when they they hijack his car and they put the uh the thing in so that the uh the penguin is driving it. Like <laughs> it's a funny scene because it's Danny DeVito in a like a spring like a springy car that you'd see outside of a uh um, outside of like a grocery store, he's just like driving it. It's, it's funny. It's a cute little, cute little scene. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, we'll, we'll get to him in a second, but yeah, this movie is gadget laden for sure. A lot of gadgets. Um, it's kind of like a, well, same director, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Um, mm. His uh, breakfast machine <laughs> is a Rube Goldberg uh, breakfast machine. Mm. Maybe, maybe Tim Burton has a thing for gadgets, um, which you know works when you're dealing with Batman, but. In terms of uh, Batman's gadgetry, um, I love uh, the bit where the end of that sequence where he uh, converts his car into a slimmer car. It looks like a bobsled almost. Mm. Uh, we get to, we get some good Keaton acting where uh, he's like trying to solve the problem because he doesn't have control of the vehicle. And then he's like heading towards this very narrow corridor in the streets. So he's like, oh, I need to hit the switch that makes the Batmobile get really narrow because I'm Batman. I have switches that do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I love that he hits it, and he hits it like three times. It doesn't work, and he's getting closer and closer, and he's like, all right, now we're worried. (laughs) It's like, And he doesn't have the Batman voice or anything. It's just like Michael Keaton having a very real moment. (laughs) And then he hits it again, and it works. And then uh, we get to see a bunch of cop cars, uh, Blues Brothers themselves into, (laughs) into the wall because... Apparently they don't care about how they drive, but uh, yeah, in terms of Batman gadgetry, uh, it's mostly stuff we've seen before. We do get to see a Batarang this time, uh, which, like I said, is not something we really saw in the first film. Um, and this time he doesn't have a bat wing; he has like a bat hydroplane, kind of, or like a bat j- a bat boat. Uh, he has it in the sewers in the climax of the film. Oh, okay, it doesn't yes. do a whole lot. I was thinking Batman Forever. I'm like, yeah, there's definitely a boat in there. That's a huge part. But Yeah, uh, no, that, that's the whole climax of the movie. And this one, it also shows up for the climax. But in terms of what he does with it, it's it's kind of here and there. It's mostly there probably from merchandising. <laughs> um, back to Catwoman. Um, we've only had one other iteration in the films that I can remember because I don't count the Halle Berry Catwoman movie. That's No, nor should you. <laughs> nobody should. Um <laughs> The Selena Kyle in 
Batman, but the Dark Knight is it the Dark Knight Rises, the third Correct. one. Yeah, she's barely in that. Yeah, and she's, uh, I've never been a fan of Catwoman as a character. Um, and it's funny too because I like her in Batman Returns because she's not Catwoman. Um, that's actually uh, one of the most common criticisms of Tim Burton's Batman films and this one in particular, is that none of the characters are how they should be um, in terms of like canon and whatnot. Selena Kyle, the whole point of her, uh, the whole point of Catwoman and her relationship with Batman is that among his rogues gallery, which she is counted among oftentimes, even though they, they boink every once in a while, <laughs> um, sometimes a lot, depending on the writer, uh, is that in like among that gallery of rogues, uh, she's actually probably the most sane. Um, yeah. Even Batman is probably more nuts than she is. She's actually got her head on her shoulders, and she's a cat burglar that sometimes does does good things. But for the most part, she's just kind of in it for herself, and she's she's okay with who she is and whatnot. Whereas Batman's got his baggage and whatnot. Um, whereas in this film, she is just all sorts of fucked <laughs> in in the brain. Uh, she's messed up in the brain, and her sole purpose is to titillate the penguin <laughs> from what i can gather she's well, titillating the, both of them yeah what's funny though is that um i love the dynamic between her and the penguin because like you said this movie may as well be like the subtitle may as well be like penguin penguin, penguin gets his group penguin back. wants to fuck <laughs> penguin wants to fuck because <laughs> um, yeah that's I think that's a brilliant interpretation of this particular iteration of the character because he's been living in the sewer for 30 fucking years. I actually... He's been traveling with the fucking circus for 30 fucking years. I actually use... I use him as a, as a gauge. I'm like, I'm like, dude, I am like Danny DeVito's penguin horny right now. <laughs> that's <how> I, <laughs> I'm like... I'm shelling through my teeth. I'm like, oh. <laughs> because it's so repulsive. So you mean I'm, I'm going to have to come over there in the midst of covid with with a, a salmon fillet to like lure you out of your hole <laughs> yes <laughs> okay i'll be bare <laughs> biting smart asses noses yeah <laughs> but yeah no that's that's his character is that they actually play up that aspect of things that he's obviously deprived and, and depraved and he uh his interactions with her um he he obviously is in it for one thing and she does not see it like she's not even trying to be sexual around him it's just that's who she is in this moment but she's not like throwing any energy towards him it's just that's how he's interpreting it and it leads to tension later on yeah i was gonna say penguin i'm like this is the only iteration i've like can go off of because i didn't watch the series with burgess meredith um so and i've yet to see penguin done so i'm really curious to see colin farrell's portrayal of the uh, penguin yeah um this is the only penguin we've gotten uh i think there were rumors that uh he was in some iterations of the nolan scripts um which would have made sense given that nolan's all about trying to toe the line between realism and comic book like he seems to lean more towards realism where most of the supervillain characters are given more of a realistic bent to them and traditionally in the comics, uh, depending on the writer and artist, uh, Oswald Cobblepot sometimes is just portrayed as like a, a small guy. Like a, he's usually just a mobster with a pointed nose. Okay. Um, I was going to say. Some, sometimes he's like a mutant. Sometimes he isn't. But 
more often than not, he's just an ordinary mobster that happens to have the nickname the Penguin. I was gonna say, what was his motive? Like, what what was his like criminal motivation? Like, what was his thing? His beef well, with Batman? Well, that's the thing is in the comics, generally he would like he was a clown in that like he had the Penguin motif going on. But as the character evolved in the comics and stuff, he kind of just became an ordinary fixture in the organized crime element of Gotham City, where he had a. Um, it was in the cartoon all the time. Was he had a nightclub that so he's was more like Falcone, basically? Yes, yes. Yeah. He was like somebody who rubbed shoulders with Falcone, as opposed to a wild card like the Joker that nobody wanted to hang out with. <laughs> like people don't hang out with the Joker because he's too unpredictable. Whereas <laughs> I'm not hanging pin- out with the fucking Joker. Yeah, you don't want that. But they hang out with the jackass guys when they're filming a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly. Yeah, but yeah, the Penguin was like a guy that you could sit down and you know have have a drink with and he you know would be level-headed and okay to deal with i think he would be good i think he would he would be good as like he has a hideout like he can go into public now like joker can't go into public but penguin can go into public but when you're in his hideout he's the kind of guy that like remember lord of war where like the warlord is sitting at his desk and he notices one of his soldiers is like talking to one of the women and he just just shoots him right in the head i feel like that's a penguin move penguin would do something like that yeah, some some of the more recent interpretations of the character. There's actually a book I think I uh, I I tried to lend to you at one point when we were working together. It's called Penguin Pain and Prejudice, I think, hmm. and it's it's a penguin centric like four issue limited series, and it's it's just about uh, his youth and upbringing and um, growing up looking like a weird penguin kid, <laughs> and uh, yeah, he kind of had a a little little bit of some some issues, I guess, but. Um, yeah, that would be akin to that interpretation, I guess. Uh, he's a very strange character in that, depending on who's writing him, he can be radically different. Because um, even on the animated series, he was he wasn't in that many episodes of the animated series, and he was mostly just kind of a regular guy that was just short and fat, and yeah. look look kind of like the Batman Returns version because that happened to be the most recent, you know, movie that came out. Um, but usually he's just an ordinary gangster. So this was a radically different interpretation of the character. Um, and it's it's something, for sure. <laughs> he's very disgusting. Yeah, no, there's a reason why McDonald's got in hot water with uh, the the uh, merchandising deals, uh, because this penguin is terrifying mm-hmm. uh, to, to, like, kids and stuff. It's not, it's not good to be around. <laughs> He's creepy. Yes, his body type, his his like the way he moves is very unsettling. Yeah, well, he's animalistic, and Danny DeVito absolutely killed this. Um, apparently, he was very method with his performance. Uh, he terrorized his co-stars and That's the crew awesome. and whatnot. It's awesome, but it's also kind of a dick move because, like I said, this is not a person you want to be around. Um, Stan Winston did the makeup effects did a great job also did a lot of the penguin outfits which i don't know if they had little people wearing the uh, penguin suits um but yeah intermingled amongst the uh like the live penguins the trained penguins which are adorable in this movie <laughs> um there's also a bunch of like emperor penguins that are actually represented by people in suits and stan winston definitely showed up for this one um but yeah the penguin makeup is tremendous um it's so layered too because like he has the greasy hair He's got the whole bodysuit. He's got the the Spock hands where, like, three of his fingers are merged together. Mm-hmm. The, f- the flesh is not separated. Uh, he's got the sh- sharpened teeth. He's got the hooked nose. And I love that his, like, spit is green. Greenish black, yeah. It's pretty and disgusting. I remember 
complaining about that. I was like, that's so icky. And my brother was like, you need to understand he's, his physiology is not normal. <laughs> like, like, like even his blood is like kind of like bluish green, like, and red. It's all over the place. The violence in this movie is, is interesting because the, the penguin when he's talking to Christopher Walken to Max Shrek and he's just like, oh, I'm going to blackmail you. He's like, what, what, what? Like, what, what have you got on me? And he's like, well, uh, all of these documents, look, you shredded up all these documents. I got all these documents. He's like, so what? He's like, what about your business partner? Like, is he, he's like, on vacation for like six weeks still. Like, he's been on vacation for a while. And he pulls out his hand. <laughs> I'm like, oh shit, there's a human hand in there. <laughs> remember me, Max? I'm Fred's hand. <laughs> and uh, I remember that being very unsettling as a kid. And Max Shrek's death, which when you see his, you know, when he's, that's something that happens in two movies. Like, uh, Jack Nicholson burns that dude alive with the uh, hand buzzer thing. And then it happens in this. The science behind this, the ending, we'll have to talk about because I don't understand how this works. It doesn't. Okay, thank you. But, (laughs) but, um, I mean, part of that is I think they were written by the same person. And actually, if you pay really close attention, I think there's some weird quirks in here where the the line, um, it's going to be a cold time in the hot town tonight or if or flip that reverse it mm-hmm. um, it's it's said both ways is in both films oh no kidding yeah um mm. and you know both films feature people being electrocuted and fried so yeah you know, may, maybe maybe the writer just had a thing for those sort of things <laughs> i do um, like I believe the guy's name is sam ham by the way <laughs> i do i do actually like the ending where you assume that selena kyle dies but then he goes to go through the rubble and she's gone and there's kind of like, is she still alive? Is she still out there? I don't know. I, I like that ending. Yeah, I, I think it works because it plays into the, the nine lives thing mm-hmm. that is, is entirely just in this film and nothing else. It's a concept that they writ, they wrote into this film. It's, it's not part of his, her mythology. But yeah, this Catwoman has superpowers uh, in that she has nine lives. Um, her fighting ability could be written off by a single line of dialogue that's actually kind of silly that um her answering machine which uh, we need to talk about her origin in this movie because her the birth of catwoman oh, is a yes. spectac- spectacular sequence it's really good you're right it's one of the best pieces of music in the film too um is a uh, her answering machine when she first gets home is a uh, it's like a cosmetics uh ad it's her mom uh, complaining why are you still single like i selena, need grandkids yeah. <laughs> selena you have to go back to, all the way back to the office yeah yeah it's her own message to herself because Shit. she knows her tendency oh, i mean she fucked up earlier in the movie too because max shrek she forgot to give him a speech she yeah had to improvise on the spot <laughs> dad go save yourself dad go chip <laughs> chip my boy save yourself That's not great. not him not chip me <laughs> oswald <laughs> I'm just some poor schmo. Got lucky. (laughs) Got lucky. (laughs) I only wish I had more than expensive baubles. (laughs) But, um, yeah, she's kind of a klutz. She's portrayed as like a, uh, I don't know, ditzy secretary character. Not ditzy. Space cadet. There you go. She's a space case. But, um, yeah, her answering machine has a a message from some guy that she was dating saying, like, my therapist said I need to to focus on me. Like I need I need to like be something not an appendage and she's like oh some appendage as in not the best in bed maybe but yeah. um 
but she writes things off as like, oh, maybe I should have let him win that last racquetball game. <laughs> so, so I guess that's the writer's way of saying uh, th- that's how she knows kung fu. She uh, she's uh. she's athletic. <laughs> um, but yeah, we should talk about that origin sequence because, like I said, she's she's a secretary. She's not great at her job. She's a space cadet, and then she gets pushed out a fucking window. And she gets nibbled by some fucking cats. And I like how she turns. Like I, th- uh, like she's very. They're two completely different characters, her before and her after. And I like when she, like, turns on after the cats nibble her back alive. And just her silhouette in the doorway when she comes back up, you can just tell, like, oh, she's lost it. Uh, that, that seems good. It's a little too much. I hate, I hate when people mess up their own place. I hate when people destroy things in their own house. It drives me nuts in movies. I'm like, just, would you please stop? You have to clean that up. Well, I want to say this is maybe... Again, this could be me stretching, but I feel like this is maybe a little bit of Tim Burton because he has, in Edward Scissorhands in particular, this is a thing that I've brought up many times on the podcast, is um, a lot of his stories involve outsiders. A lot of times those outsiders can be interpreted as artists or people with gifts, usually. It's usually a person with a gift. So Batman falls into that category. Catwoman falls into that category. Edward Scissorhands is the prototypical example of that. Mm -hmm. But the idea is usually these people are like, aberrations or like monsters that have some sort of remarkable gift that when exploited can be very valuable and very useful to people but they're not meant to have that happen Mm -hmm. they're meant to exist in the periphery of society because they're not one of us they're kind of like the x-men or something um and you see this in like edward scissorhands and in this movie where the act of like destruction is some it's like a catharsis or it leads to a rebirth of some sort because there's scenes in edward scissorhands where he throws tantrums Mm -hmm. and he like destroys shit like he just there's that scene where he sees winona Ryder making out with uh anthony michael hall Mm -hmm. we'll see him uh, a couple weeks from now yes uh, the dark knight films (laughs) yeah but there's that scene where he walks down the hallway and he just like puts his claws against both sides of the hall and just traces like all sorts of scratches in the wall. I got to go back and watch that. I haven't. You, I've only seen it the one time. It's it's not it's not going to blow your mind, but I find it very watchable. Like I can put it on and just enjoy it myself anytime. But uh, early Tim Burton just has that quality to him, uh, which is why we're talking about. It. But yeah. Um, yeah, she trashes her apartment. I love that when she comes in, she just has that like vacant look, where it's mm-hmm. just, and she she reiterates. We get to see the same scene like back to back, like five minutes apart, where she comes home, she has to go back to the office, and then she comes back, and um, she does the uh, "Honey, I'm home." Oh wait, I'm not married. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she does it again, and she's like, Ugh. and like she's just totally out of it. And then uh, when she uh, gets the voicemail again, she hits her message machine again what triggers her like total meltdown is a by the way she's drinking straight from the carton yeah Um, that's disgusting (laughs) don't do that especially if you live with other people (laughs) you live alone you can do it yeah you can do that alone not with other people but um the the message is for a cosmetic it's a cosmetics voicemail and it says something about like it's for the working women of Gotham and your boss will go nuts. It's like mm. just so happened her boss pushed her out a fucking window. <laughs> so she freaks out, she throws the milk carton. And yeah, she destroys her apartment while her uh, essentially her theme music. It's like the instrumentation here, it's very stringy, it's very slinky, like cat like. Mm-hmm. And it's just this grand piece of music that plays over her just destroying the fuck out of her apartment. And, <laughs> and sewing, uh, yeah. But yeah, that's what I mean. Destruction leads to creation of some sort. 
which hmm. leads to her i love the hell here uh the fluorescent tubing lights on her wall she mm. smashes the it says hello there she smashes the o and the t um and uh she's revealed in her full cat Catwoman regalia with a like in silhouette at a distance so we don't get the details of it but yeah she hand sews her costume which is how we get that explanation of how she gets a costume which is interesting it's maybe the only time we get that in either of these movies but what do you think of the costume i mean uh it's uh it's pretty cool man uh it's, <laughs> it's i don't i don't know i don't know what i think about it i think it's it's interesting because i like seeing the stitching throughout it i think that makes it a little more like if it had just been like solid black it just wouldn't have been as like i'm thinking of the cartoon like the cartoon is just like black and gray and like there's nothing really much to it and then the uh dark knight rises it's still it's just like it's not it's not as cool it's too sleek it's too it's, cool it's also overly complex uh, in terms of like how it was made in the dark knight rises it's like this is a cat burglar woman that lives in a shit apartment how did she get that <laughs> also she just looks like like uh what's her face from austin powers like she's just got like the, the leather jumpsuit on basically oh. it looks like. <laughs> Elizabeth Elizabeth yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah i like this one because it's uh i mean i like the what, what what kind of leather is that like the glossy looking leather like the shiny leather and then it's just all stitched you can see all the stitching i think it looks cool yeah, I like the imperfections to it. I think the the white stitching on it gives it a nice highlight. Like I said, the 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 look, the production design, like the lighting of this film, everybody has like a thin layer of white, like like light surrounding them, like a halo, and it plays into that motif really well. Like those like explicit just white highlights on the costume, and it it doesn't exactly look handmade, but the stitching like kind of supports that a little bit. The corset's a little much. Um, I'm yeah. sure Michelle Pfeiffer would agree. Yes. Um, but, you know, maybe Tim Burton has a thing for that. Obviously, he has a thing for rubber. Um, yes. But um, the claws are kind of an interesting addition because I don't know what these are, but she has them in her home as part of her sewing kit. They look like um, like you can get them for playing guitar. Like you put them on your – or you're playing banjo. You put them on your tip of your fingers. They're kind of like – almost like you would use for fingernails for, like, finger-picking the guitar. It kind of mm. looks like that. I think it has it's, – it's some kind of sewing mechanism where you're pushing something through. Like you're using your finger to push it through something, like push it through a piece of cloth. Like it's just – Yeah, I could see that. I mean it's yeah. like a thimble with a point on it. Yeah, you're like kind of idea. To, yeah, it could be used for stitching of some sort. But, yeah, she has retractable claws. I don't – the retractable element seems total bullshit, but whatever. Yeah. Um, I like that the claws do come into play quite often, though. Like, um, Scorpio gets tic-tac-toed <laughs> in the face. That's pretty great. That was omitted from the, the VHS copy I had. Oh, I was, really? I mean, he gets his tic-tac-toe, man. Yeah. <laughs> he gets... Shroom, he gets yeah. Um, and, of course, she stabs Batman a couple of times. I, I, love this, I love the second time he gets stabbed because uh, he pulls the the nail out of her and i love like the interplay between the two of them because they're constantly flirting throughout the movie while beating the shit out of each other mm -hmm. again some kinky shit going on here yeah but it seems to work for both of them because they they don't give up they yeah. keep up the chase <laughs> but um uh they're both weird <laughs> but um i love that he throws the he throws the nail down and she picks it up and she just has this like pissed off look on her face like like you just broke a nail and mm. she's like damn <laughs> but i love that when he when he pulls it out he just shoots her this look like 
fucking really? <laughs> like, <laughs> stab me with a fucking nail? <laughs> and then he just throws it on the ground and he walks off. It's uh, pretty great. I can't believe we forgot to mention the Penguin's mm. fucking umbrellas. His arsenal of umbrellas. Yes, so you did mention gadgets, and this is something that is a hand-me-down from the comics. This is something that's always been there uh, for the Penguin character and the Burgess Meredith version of the character, which apparently the, the mayor uh, subplot of this movie is actually an episode of the 1966 mm. series. Um, I didn't know that until I did some research the other day, but... Um, yeah, he has uh, a shotgun umbrella. He has a machine gun umbrella. He has a gyro umbrella that comes into play many times in the film and is, in fact, how he uh, fights you in the Batman Returns video games. Um, and uh, he also has the cute one, which is, I still say, it's the it's maybe the best line anyone has ever died to <laughs> in, in cinema history. The but yeah, we'll get to that. But uh, before we're done with Catwoman, though, um, is there anything more to say about her relationship with Batman in this film? I mean, they're kind of dating-ish, and she's kind of um, what's the word? Not mousy, but uh, inconsistent. Like she's not really getting returning his calls or anything like that. She makes it explicitly clear several times in the movie that um, she's not the she's Catwoman at night. Um, basically there's that time when uh, they meet in uh, Gotham Plaza and he's asking her out on a date and he gives her a time like like how about like five or six and she's like oh yeah that would be great five <laughs> like <laughs> like early <laughs> and then they do a, a thing that's it's a little ham-fisted like it's a little tropey but they do the thing where they both have secret identities and they're both trying to conceal them from each other and uh when they when they're on a date together is, is uh after they've exchange punches um, <laughs> as Batman and Catwoman so they both have wounds from their initial encounter and they're you know they make out in Wayne Manor and uh, she touches his uh, wounded uh, stomach from where she stabbed him and uh, he touches her burnt shoulder where he threw acid on her so throughout the whole movie they're doing that dance where it's like it's almost like a rom-com trope where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, they both got secrets and it's like oh, so there, somebody's gonna figure out then they're gonna have a big blow up in this case, literally. <laughs> but, but yeah, th- that's kind of the dynamic between the two characters. Is that, like I said, it, it carries over um, from the Vicky Vale story, where it's like he's he's looking for romance. In this case, she's kind of evasive. Uh, she's trying to protect him, kind of, where she knows that she's kind of fucked up, so mm-hmm. she's not letting him get close. And I, uh, I love that they never get past awkward. <laughs> like like every interaction they have is kind of strained and weird and then it gets really dark and really weird when they're at the costume party towards the end uh, where she's there to shoot Christopher Walken <laughs> it's funny how, how she looks crazy the rest of the film like when she like presents herself in the office like she looks nuts and then every time that they meet again like you can still like dude how are you not seeing it she's got crazy eyes yeah uh, I mean she does well to cover it up in her interactions with other people like when she's hurrying out the door at Wayne Manor after their date goes south, uh, Alfred stops her on her way out, and she she's fine with Alfred. Like she, you can tell that her brain is going many directions at once. But she's like, try. I know I'm being weird right now, but please try to understand that I'm. I actually enjoyed myself, even though I can't quite express it properly. She when she when she presents herself in the office and her hair is like like bozoed out she looks like johnny depp in uh the alice in wonderland movie like his mad hatter 
the yeah, hair and the I, eyes. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's it's like that. Uh, was it the Saturday Night Live character, the Rosanna Rosanna Dana? Yeah, Rosanna <laughs> Rosanna Dana. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Uh, Gene Wilder's wife. Um, uh, uh, Gilda Radner. Yeah. There you go. Um, but yeah, she she does project a weird visual aesthetic it's like mm, i don't know about this lady but them eyes man that's all that's all you need sometimes um but yeah that that uh, costume ball scene is really interesting it also gives you uh, one of christopher walken's best lines the yawn <laughs> i wanted to clarify something so the set design we get our same like when we've got like the gotham in the street stuff it's like the same two corners basically it looks like which yeah. is fine which is fine yeah Gotham City is mostly represented by, um, well, there's there's the plaza, and then there's, like, the street corner where uh, all the fisticuffs happen. But mm-hmm. it's mostly just the plaza where the tree is. Uh, again, Christmas movie. Um, but, yeah, lots of clowns get punched in this movie. <laughs> yes, a lot of clowns do get punched in this movie. Um, the miniatures, the uh, like, the Beetlejuice. We've got... So the opening shots of like going over the park and stuff like that, and going into eventually going into where the penguin is, is that is that a miniature? Are we miniaturing in there? Absolutely. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, uh, the the penguin's mansion, Wayne Manor, um, the uh, the zoo where the penguin under like above where the mm-hmm. penguin is. That's absolutely a miniature. The camera work there is gorgeous. Bring uh, back miniatures. They're still here. They still get used. They just, uh, they're harder to find. Like, they're harder to, it's not that they're hard to find. It's hard, they're hard to see because they're covered in CGI and stuff usually. I like to notice them. I like to, I like to know that they're there. So do I. But, um, it's, it's almost like Hollywood's a little ashamed that they still use them. It's like, don't be ashamed. That's like the best part. It's the best. It's what makes them, it's what makes these movies rewatchable. It's like, I know what the plot is. I want to go back and see some of the artwork. Well, all the Batman movies, as far as I know, except for maybe the Zack Snyder movies, make extensive use of miniatures. Even the Christopher Nolan movies, especially the Christopher Nolan movies, have some luscious miniatures. Man, I wish I had more time so I can go back and watch those before we get to recording them. Well, we'll, we'll see when we get there. But um, I think we're about done with Catwoman. So anything else you got to say about the Penguin? No, no, I don't think so. He's I mean, gross. I, I, I love, yeah, he's gross. I love that about the performance. I love that he seems to make everyone uncomfortable. Um, he's Everyone's on their heels around him all the time. I love that Christopher Walken's like the guy who seems mostly yeah. okay with him. He's totally <laughs> fine with him, yeah. He's totally fine with dealing with this weird penguin man. Um, but I, li- I love the penguin's arc. I love that, like I said um, earlier about Tim Burton and his uh, themes with monsters and creative types kind of being exploited that's that is the penguin story in this movie is that he i love that um in your plot summary you had trouble defining what his plan is because he does too (laughs) like he's not sure what he wants initially his plan seems to be um he wants to kill all the firstborn children of gotham that's like his number one priority that's what he uses his emergence and uh, abduction of uh, christopher walken max shrek that's what he does with it is he goes to like the hall of records and looks up all the firstborn names and addresses and stuff he goes to their record department um but then he gets derailed by that in the form of uh he wants to get laid and Catwoman yeah. comes comes to his house and he's like whoa, whoa. that's a possibility Something that goes south <laughs> yeah that goes south when she says mm, you know i'm not i'm not terribly into you and uh, he puts one of his uh gyro 
uh, umbrellas around her neck and turns it on and it lifts her off and uh, doesn't kill her completely. She's only mostly dead. Um, but yeah, that's his reaction to being a uh, uh, refused is uh, straight up murder. <laughs> is he full blown incel? I think. <laughs> oh yeah, no, he he is he fits the blueprint. I, <laughs> He's I don't the poster know. child for incels. I love his first exchange with Catwoman because she shows up in his house and uh, Vincent Chevelli's there as the organ grinder. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, Oswald, somebody is here to see you. <laughs> and uh, she's laying on his bed and he's like, oh. <laughs> and her first line, I think, is, it's chilly in here. And he's like, I'll warm you. <laughs> and uh, at every turn, everything that comes out of her mouth, he spins it as an innuendo in his head. And it's amazing because she's trying to get him. She, it's the supervillain team-up scene. This is something that I've made fun of so many times because it's, it's something that just finds its way into even the classiest of superhero movies. But she's just there to be like, hey, you want to help me kill Batman? And the whole time she's like straight up just saying like, help me kill Batman. And he's like totally distracted yeah. and like I'm unable to focus. And she's at one point she refers to Batman as the fly in their ointment. And there's this pause. And he runs over to his bet, his like nightstand. And he's like ointment, oh, uh, yeah. scented or uh, unscented. Dude, that, you could take that and just pull that back out, please. That, it, it's that was... it's bad. It's really bad. But I just love the the timing where he's like he oh. only got the word he wanted to hear out of it. Like that's yeah. <laughs> All I heard was suck. Like <laughs> what did, what, that's the only thing you pulled out of that sentence. Like no no no, you you misunderstanding what I'm getting at. Yeah, but it 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 actually fits the character. <laughs> it fits the character, but for me it's just like okay, dude, this guy's it, just a horn dog. It doesn't add anything to the film. But anyway, going back to his arc, um yeah, he gets derailed by Shrek trying to maneuver him into position as the mayor because he's trying to build a capacitor uh, to hoard energy and get rich, basically, uh, so he can leave it to his son, a chip. Chip. Uh, so basically, he's trying to oust the mayor by having uh, the Penguins, Red Triangle, Circus Gang, uh, cause all sorts of mayhem, turn the public against the mayor, and then install Cobblepot as the new mayor. And then he, you know, he goes in line with it. He's like, huh, sure, I'll be mayor. It's <laughs> just like, yeah. that sounds cool. Um, but then that goes south because uh, Batman uses the power of DJing. Um, it's the it's 1992, so of course the audio recording he has to scratch the disc. Mm. He has to waka waka. <laughs> it's so cringy, but you know, 1992, it fits. Um, so they he causes the public to turn their backs on the penguin. Uh, they throw eggs and tomatoes at him, and we get a replay of his birth where he uh, jumps off the same bridge back into the sewers. And the first thing he says when he gets back to his lair is, uh, "I, <laughs> my name is not Oswald. It's like I am, I am, I'm not a man. I'm an animal, cold-blooded." And then uh, he says, "Okay, fuck it. We're going back to Plan A. We're gonna kill all the kids. <laughs> kill the kids." <laughs> <laughs> and then the fat clown's like, "Doesn't this, isn't that a lot? No, isn't that a little much or something?" And then he shoots the fat clown. He's like, "No, it's a lot." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the. Um, he just goes nuts again and he defaults to his original plan to kill all the firstborns which is where the structure of the movie really gets out of control where uh, it turns into just a series of it's like a Roadrunner versus Wile E. Coyote gag it's like uh, if I was to change one thing about the structure of this film it would be um, the scene with uh, Vincent Chiavelli taking a train down the streets of Gotham and abducting all the children 
more of that, please. Yeah. That lasts two minutes, if that. Yeah, it's good. resolved in seconds. Yeah, <laughs> it's resolved in seconds. Yeah. Um, the the thing that I would probably change is the rockets on the penguins, which I thought was a little messed up. I'm like, okay. This, I mean, it was just a weird move from him. Merchandising. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Gotta think I, about no, that. they sold the penguins as toys. I remember they came in a two-pack. You got a little penguin and a big penguin in one I blister. did not know that. Well, you were probably very young. I was very young. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, uh, that's that's the weird part of the structure, though, is that he goes back to his default plan, which has been teased since the beginning of the movie. Uh, and it amounts to just Vincent Ciavelli taking this lovely train prop down the streets of Gotham. We get to see some clowns throw some children in cages, which I'm sure the producers were not thrilled with because that's eerie. Um, and then Batman just kind of yanks Vincent out of the driver's seat and that's the end of that uh, the monkey takes him takes a, a a note back to the penguin and it basically says bat it's just a middle finger from batman yeah. basically and we get that lovely scene where the camera zooms all the way into his teeth as he goes ah! <laughs> actually kyle i don't know if you remember but i think that's one of the funniest parts of this movie is a uh, when uh when danny devito is driving the batmobile and like you said it looks like one of those machines that you pu- you pump quarters into in the front of a grocery store um it's in his uh trailer for his mayoral candidacy which by the way is covered in posters for elect cobblepot and stuff um, another fun thing about the production design almost every room he is in in the movie has sun- has a visible air conditioning unit in the background because <laughs> oh, <that makes> <laughs> he's a penguin <laughs> um anyway when a batman finds the device that's controlling the batmobile day devito's reaction is just to start screaming yeah <laughs> no no screaming. words yeah. no words just he just stares directly into the camera and shrieks at him <laughs> it's so it's so abrasive that he just punches the monitor he's like enough of that shit yeah. that's <laughs> awful yeah. <sighs> yeah. but anyway yeah the climax of the movie is is the ping like it's plan b like plan a was abduct all the children uh, plan B is, well, now everyone's got to die. So I'm going to strap a bunch of rockets to my penguins. I'm going to blow up Gotham City. And it, it all feels very hurried. It feels very rushed. It feels very, not very well considered, I guess. And it happens literally back to back with the first plot. Where it, it's, it, ex, it is exactly a Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote routine. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the whole climax of the movie is, I think it's pretty spectacular, even though it's, it, in terms of action, not a whole lot happens. Mm-mm. It's just kind of like all the characters crash into each other and people die. <laughs> I do like when um, Bruce Wayne is talking down in the Penguin's lair and they go to the shot where he's going to reveal himself. <laughs> and it's you can see that the eye makeup's not under there anymore and it's like a completely different uh, it's a completely different hood and he just rips off the mask. I'm like, oh man, I, I saw what you did there. Yeah, um, it's funny you bring that up because uh, I'm sure every nerd on the internet has said this on Reddit or whatever, but um, the 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 Batman, the Matt Reeves movie that comes out next year, um, there's explicit shots of Robert Pattinson wearing eye black. Mm-hmm. So it's finally somebody decided to take that into consideration. Robert, Not Pattinson's, that really... Bat- <laughs> Robert Pattinson's Batman has eyeshadow. Do you see? <laughs> No, it's like one of those details that it's kind of like when Christopher Nolan um, put the, the head turn 
mm-hmm. into into the dark night it's like it's one of those things that you know nerds on the internet noticed ages ago but it's only just now that we're getting to it and honestly it's not even that important but it's kind of neat just to see that you know somebody took notice because yeah it doesn't make sense that his eyes would have eye eye black or eye shadow on them and then when he takes his mask off oh surprise none of that <laughs> um but yeah the climax of the movie um like i said uh it not a whole lot happens it's not super elaborately choreographed in terms of like action design it's mostly just batman uh batman has dismantled the the clown gang so badly at this point that they just gave up yeah they just give the fuck up in fact right before he arrives at the penguin's lair you can actually see them just leaving (laughs) the penguin's just like oh oh, (laughs) that's not good (laughs) i let oh another this movie has so many fucking lines in it. Like every time Christopher Walken and Chip are on screen, it's amazing. But um, I love that when the penguin crashes the costume ball, where, by the way, Catwoman and Bruce Wayne both show up. Uh, Catwoman and Batman both show up uh, out of costume because surprise, you know, they're they're both already wearing their secret identities. Um, but yeah, Penguin crashes the ball in his duck mobile. It's a mm-hmm. uh, his amphibious duck mobile, which is pretty fucking cool. And you get to fight it in the video game. But um, uh, I love that he, he he hits the mare with his umbrella in the arm. And he just gives like an ow. <laughs> like, it's not even like a like a genuinely pain. Just like, ow, fucker. <laughs> but what he, the way he phrases it. He just like, he points his shotgun uh, umbrella at Chip. And he just yells at him, in the duck. <laughs> I wish that's the one, like, there was only one villain crashing a party. I mean, arguably, Ra's al Ghul kind of crashes the party, but he doesn't really crash the party. The Joker crashes the party in the Christopher, in the Christopher Nolan uh, Batman. But uh, Bane doesn't crash any parties. He crashes a football game. He crashes a boardroom. Uh, Bane does? He, yes. Uh, he shows up, and, uh, you know, when they have the... Uh, the fusion reactor underneath Gotham, Gotham City. Uh, he shows up at the boardroom of, of Wayne Enterprises, and he's like, I need a couple of execs. I need volunteers, because the device can't be activated without cooperation. I do not remember this scene at all. It's 30 seconds of screen time. That movie is bloated. You, um, <laughs> you have to bash a party. You have to crash a party, though, specifically. Like, that's there has to be some kind of charity event because that's exactly what the Joker crashes as the charity event for uh, for Harvey Dent. Like you have to crash a charity event or some kind of party. The perfect opportunity would have been the one where uh, uh, Selena Kyle steals his uh, car. Like that's where you have Bane crash a party. I mean, it would be it would be kind of funny to see Bane crash a party and like have have a suit with like a bow tie. Mm-hmm. And he's like bulging out of it, <laughs> <laughs> and you can like see the seams of his tack vest underneath it. Yeah, and then uh, maybe have him grab a a glass of champagne and like put it up to his mask and be like oh that's unfortunate (laughs) so there's like you're only as strong as your weakest link that movie is you're only as strong as your opening like only as strong as your opening scene but that's not true because the opening scene in that movie is fucking awesome and then the Mm -hmm. rest of the movie it's just downhill from there it just gets worse uh i would say the midpoint's my favorite part which one that fist fight in the fucking sewers <laughs> oh i thought you were gonna say that. okay yeah that's <laughs> that that was the entire reason i was hyped for that movie kyle him I getting was, locked in would, does like oh fuck that just i was a new so tone. impossibly hyped for that movie just because of exactly one shot from the trailer which we will get to uh, a couple weeks from now knowing you now that makes a lot of sense just simple math but 
Um, yeah, I love that uh, the, ping- <laughs> the penguin grabs Batman. He's like, <laughs> what is it he says to him? It, it's like, you're just you're just jealous because I'm a genuine freak and you have to wear a mask. <laughs> and Michael Keaton's reaction is, you might be right. <laughs> you might be right about that, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, long story short, uh, all the players arrive at the scene at the end of the movie. Um, Penguin's death is spectacular, although the way he gets to his death is unfortunate. Because, um, like I said, there's no real action component to it. And you can't really expect Danny DeVito in this heavy makeup to do much. Um, literally, Batman doesn't even touch him. He just gets mm. spooked by some bats, and he takes a bad step. <laughs> and uh, he falls into his pool and probably gives himself a nasty concussion. <laughs> and, uh, him coming back out of the pool is fucking gross. Like, it's it's creepy. Yeah, the noises, the gurgling noises. <laughs> is, yeah. But when he pulls that umbrella and... Ah, shit! I picked the cute one. <laughs> uh, everything he says there, and then his death, the, ah, and then the face plant, and then he has fucking penguin pallbearers. Mm-hmm. Penguin pallbearers. That's that is that is whimsy defined. <laughs> I feel like people watching the movie for the like having watched the first one and like it's pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of crazy stuff that happens in that, and then just imagine like the older the older people watching that and they're like. Those fucking penguin pallbearers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I, I mean, Kyle, <laughs> you, need, you need to understand, like, like we'll get to this next week, but the reason why the Joel Schumacher movies are the way they are is because of this movie. I see that. <laughs> because this movie terrified people. Uh, it was not super, super good for marketing to kids. And it came out in fucking summer. This, this wasn't a Christmas movie. No, this was a summer this movie. This is a summer movie. And Batman is campy. Like, that's... that's. I mean, like, the original Batman series and the movie is very campy, and that's what Schumacher went back to. He's like, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not making this dark. We're making this campy. Yeah, they, they needed to make a change because it. this was too much. This was, this was Tim Burton given too much control. I love it for that, but as a studio exec, I can see why they would panic. Uh, because this this was very dark and it, gruesome in a lot of ways uh, as evidenced by penguin pallbearers and whatnot but um did you want to talk about uh, catwoman and max shrek like they're in scene together like yeah, the, you, the you electrocution you wanted, you wanted to talk about logistics <laughs> so she grabs a hold of some kind of exposed wiring okay so she grabs a hold of him and then she's got the the stun gun which is uh, a, a key here and they make out and then does she electrocute him through the stun gun i don't understand the, the just the, the logistics of it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because okay. she yeah she has him up against the metal surface and she grabs hold of the tesla coil looking thingy mm-hmm. and then she has a stun gun presumably in both of their mouths i guess <clears throat> Maybe she's putting a current through the machine, which is causing it to explode. Mm-hmm. And she's forming a circuit between herself, Shrek, and the machine. Yeah, because you need somebody to be holding a piece of metal to, which, to transfer. Yeah. Yeah. They both, she's holding that. Yeah. They're so I both guess... making contact with metal. Although mm-hmm. she's wearing rubber. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but, she's got uh, nine lives. Yeah. She's got nine lives, so she's going to be fine. He's not. <laughs> he is roasted. He looks like. Daniel Stern in uh, Home Alone 2 when he, he he turns into a skeleton. Ah! Yeah. 
I think I still have a, a screen capture of that on my computer. <laughs> Daniel Stern screaming is one of the funniest things in the world. He made a career out of it. <laughs> that and uh, the Wonder Years. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, the logistics, I think we narrowed it down there. But, yeah, uh, throughout the whole movie, her arc has kind of been both, like, li- liberation a little bit in that, like, she became Catwoman. She's she's feeling herself in that she's running around the streets tic-tac-toeing people's faces. Uh, she's horny for Batman a little bit. And then on top of that, she's also trying to get revenge for getting pushed out that window because the whole time she's kind of been gunning for shrek was kind of like a a matter of whenever she gets to it actually if you think of her in terms of like a cat person that Mm. does make some sense it's like i'll get to you when i get to you (laughs) consumerism kind of pops into both of these films and it's just kind of it's strange how they're associated it's because like the first one the joker's contaminating all these products and then you see the people getting grosser as it goes along i'm like i don't know what he's getting at but okay and in this too like she freaks out when she's like your boss will think like the cosmetics thing your boss will think you look great triggers her because her boss threw her out the window but she when she's at the department store and she puts the spray cans into the microwave she's like whipping the uh the mannequins too like like she's getting at something it's like there's a motivation there or like some kind of underlying message but i don't know what it is I think it's a very loose theme that you can find in a lot of Tim Burton's earlier films. Is he se- he seems to hate the suburbs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he I seems to hate like I don't know, mainstream art and society a little bit, which I could I could see because he's an, oddball, an artist, yeah. And he's probably, you know, he's he probably has to talk to those people way more than he's comfortable with. Um, I think I think artists it, artists hate art that is that makes money. I think that's the that's the rule. It's part of being an artist. Is yeah. Like com- commercial art is frowned upon, and yeah. I mean Edward Scissorhands explicitly deals with that, where you have a guy with a gift for you know cutting things, like either like, uh, what what lawn care and whatnot, like like and uh, hair hair cutting and whatnot, styling, aesthetics and design, and uh, he gets exploited by the suburbanites, and they make a fortune off of him while he doesn't repaying the benefits really the one lady that he gives the haircut to and it's very like she's very aroused by this haircut she was on i believe it was on boston public where she was on some tv show where she talks about breastfeeding and how she was sexually aroused by it and i'll always like every time i see her i'm like i always think of that only that one scene so when i remember watching uh edward scissorhands i'm like oh that's the breastfeeding lady Ew. <laughs> i mean most actors are kind of weird and uh she was well cast. I'll just say that much because that is her role in that movie. Is she is the horniest Fucking of weird, housewives, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she wants to go into business with him exp- expressly for the purpose of betting him, exploiting him, in the, him. Yeah. in the in the back room after he's done cutting hair. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, Selena Kyle. Her her arc seems to be kind of like one of liberation, like coming into her own skin while kind of going nuts and mm. uh, also killing Max Shrek while she's at it. Um, he had it coming. Yeah, he, he's a scumbag. In fact, like like I said, this is the Penguin's movie, so in a lot of ways you could interpret him as the actual villain of the story, whereas the Penguin, he does some... He is a villain for sure, but what pushes him into villainy is misunderstandings and you know the public kind of lashing out at him while he does the same in return. By the way... um. One of my favorite pieces of music on the score and uh, one of the more interesting scenes in the movie, I think, is uh, when he visits his parents' grave. Um, 
because uh, the the music that plays here is mirrored um, by his own death at the end of the film because it sounds like a funeral procession, which mm-hmm. it is. Um, but it's this interesting moment that's kind of layered because uh, Bruce Wayne suspects that he actually already knew who his parents were. So it's entirely like just putting on a show for the public to you know win the hearts and minds and whatnot. But the music and Danny DeVito's acting is layered in such a way that's like, you know, he. I think he actually does care a little bit. Like he does miss his parents, even though he hates them. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Like he has some conflict over that. But it's just a beautiful little moment in a very, very strange movie. <laughs> it is a very strange movie. Yeah. Um, you got anything else to say about Batman Returns? No, I think that I think we've I think I've said my piece. Yeah. Uh, last thing I'll say, I guess, is just about the music. So listen to it. If you haven't heard the score before, if you're interested in all, check it out because it's it is I think one of the best film scores ever composed. Uh, just like everything else about this movie, I think um, Danny Elfman took notes on his own work from the first one mm-hmm. and improved it. Um, the his he was in like his choir era, where <laughs> it just had he had the perfect people, like the perfect pitch, the perfect tone, and uh, this would carry on into like Edward Scissorhands score. Uh, in particular but in other scores uh, subsequent scores but yeah everything just everything came together and tim burton allowed to be weirder than he was in the first one (laughs) works for me probably didn't work for most mainstream audiences at the time though i couldn't i think the last soundtrack that really that i noticed and i could see myself listening to i actually have it downloaded is the blade runner 2049 uh soundtrack which is fucking awesome uh, it's not it's not a type of music that I really listen to either, and I think it it's I'd say like thirty percent of that movie is the soundtrack in there. It's mostly ambient, right? Mm-hmm. It's very ambient, but it's um, but it has purpose in certain scenes. Like it's ambient when it's not really doing anything, but it'll kick in to when it's actually setting a tone. Because the way I'm remembering it, and it's been a long time since I've heard it, to be honest, is it's mostly setting the mood kind of mm. like taking a back seat to the you know the, the script and whatnot and just kind of letting things breathe a bit whereas this score is kind of like a a frame for frame match mm-hmm. for the movie it's very intentional very deliberate um it's it's one of danny elfman and uh, john williams is like the master but danny elfman has a gift for like really matching every note of the score with every frame of the movie When's the last time you watched the Lord of the Rings movies? I mean, I, th- I think eventually we'll discuss them on here, and I'm excited for that because I'd like to hear your thoughts on the soundtrack because it's, for me, it's iconic. Like, I, I know you can play a piece of music in there and I can tell you exactly what's happening in the film. I'm not a huge fan of the soundtrack, but it has mm. been a very long time since I've seen the movies. Um, okay. I'll, I'll acknowledge the themes are iconic and, and powerful, but it has something that... Uh, it just doesn't resonate with me because it's a little too sprawling. Yes, but and then there are specific. I think that the score works better for uh, the dark side. Basically, the dark side scores are much better. Yeah, I'd I'd have to listen to it in isolation because I've never actually done that. Oh, I love the Hobbit and Shire. The Hobbit and the Shire music is really good. I know mm. that tune. I know that tune for sure. And yeah. like I said, the themes are absolutely iconic. Like I I do know them even though I don't have the most appreciation for those movies but uh, say, that's, it, that speaks to the strength of the this, composition that i still know them as i say the setting also the music that setting isn't really your 
isn't that isn't really your area so that makes Euro- sense yeah european high fantasy mm, not, really, <laughs> not really my wheelhouse <laughs> uh, but that being said um this yep. has been so much fun talking about oh, yeah. the batmans um i look forward to more batmans talk i always um, look forward to the master class they're always fun yeah no this is we get to you know just kind of throw our hair back and Put our hair up and just be like, yeah, motherfucker. I'm gonna throw. I'm gonna throw out a, uh, an option for next uh, next master class. Lethal Weapon, because that is that is four films that I think you and I have enough to talk about. I mean, any time, man. <laughs> any time, any place, I can throw anytime. down about Lethal. <laughs> any time. Uh, now we're all over the place, but yeah. Um, next week we'll be covering the Joel Schumacher era mm-hmm. of the batman's franchise <laughs> the showa era the schumacher era <laughs> it's funny well, yeah yeah <laughs> we, we sh- <laughs> um but yeah that being said um if you want to check out some of our other uh podcasts and whatnot um you can find our website at catching up on cinema.com uh we also have a couple of social media accounts you can find us on the twitter at catching cinema as well as the instagram at catching up on cinema so uh, feel free to hit us up at either of those accounts if you want to throw a comment our way or make a suggestion as to future programming. Um, anyway, uh, thanks so much for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next week for the Joel Schumacher Batman's era. Yes. 